we're live. What's with the funky bag, fella? Look at that. Beautiful little hippie case you got yeah. going on there. Yeah, you I got know. the the bandana rocking. The pygmy has returned. When did you become the big pygmy and not uh, the Viking? Yeah, I think that was just something that kind of naturally changed a couple of uh, weeks ago. Oh, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. So uh, you've returned, everybody, Justin Wren. Um, and you are, uh, you're you going to be fighting for Bellator now. Yeah, uh, it's Bellator Pull this sucker right up, right up to you. There. Absolutely. It's Bellator 141, uh, and yeah, it's Friday night, August 28th. We'll be on so, Spike. So you talked about doing this when you were here before, and you said, you know, it was a good way to raise awareness for your cause, Fight for the Forgotten. I got the t-shirt on right now. Yeah. Uh, is it fightfortheforgotten.org? Is that the... Uh... Fightfortheforgotten.org right now, yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, fightfortheforgotten.com will be changed in a matter of a day or two. So you decided to make a comeback just mm -hmm. to try to raise awareness and help these pygmies. That's the number one motivation for sure. Second wow. would be, man, I love the sport. I love the sport, uh, just like you. But, uh, yeah, I think that's a great opportunity to give my family a voice. So. And how long has it been since you fought? It's been five years, bro. Wow. Five years, two months. How old are you now? I'm 28. You're still a youngin'. <laughs> Damn, I think man. I still got at least seven years. Yeah, well, for sure, especially heavyweights. Right. Heavyweights, uh, I watched some videos of you training too, man. You're looking good, dude, for five years off. Yeah, That's thanks. crazy. Yeah, I, I guess uh, in the forest it wasn't too too much of a fatty diet <laughs> like here in the states. Well, it's not just that. Um, like, you didn't take any beatings. You didn't, mm -hmm. you know, no gym wars, right. no uh, stress on your joints, all that. All I got the... to I got to heal up a lot on the the battle wound kind of things. I mean, I went through a lot of sickness and stuff, but besides that, like, yeah, fighting wise, I healed up from a lot of injuries. Imagine if like you have a malaria actually gives you endurance or something crazy. That'd be awesome. I go you know? get it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they say that like certain things are actually good for injuries, like bee stings, like are good for arthritis. I don't know. Some that. strange way, yeah, well, yeah. Like they uh, they put bee stings on people that have certain types of arthritis, and it actually helps relieve them. Well, Imagine if people found out that like malaria, because you were you were saying you were like basically on I, death's door. Yeah, I was about to die for sure. Um, one thing that's crazy, say insect bites. Um, there's a way that they do sutures or stitches in uh, Congo with these crazy ants and uh, they're these army ants or soldier ants that, that literally they pierce your skin and so they'll just take it and let it bite a wound and then they pull the body off and so they leave the head leave the mandibles or the jaw that literally close your wound that way what yeah I've been bit by a man they're, they're terrible that's fucking crazy yeah so you just walk around with a bunch of heads on a cut right absolutely does it work <laughs> it works it works for sure. They so it's stay like a staple. Then, yeah, it's like a staple. Yeah, it'd be just like getting staples, I guess. Necessity, the mother of invention. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you know this, but this is a crazy uh, malaria fact you could throw around. Malaria has killed half of the people that have ever died ever in the world. Wow. That's that's crazy. That's nuts. Had no idea. Um, but Spray but I, I believe it because uh, absolutely believe it because it's terrible. It's um, I, I've known people that Look have died that. of it. Look at that picture. Yeah, there you go, bro. <laughs> That's fucking nuts. You. Yeah, <laughs> that is nuts. Uh huh. Wow, those guys have some really long. We're looking at a, a photo of the army ants being used uh, to suture a wound. Yeah, and those those ones have these crazy long and slender ones, but the ones in in Congo they have these thick, just nuts. So yeah, look right there. Look at that one up top. Yeah. That's crazy. No, no. That one might be. Is that fake? Photoshop. Yeah. That looks fake as fuck. <laughs> but. 
That's just titches. Yeah. That's, uh, well, necessity, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you got to figure out a way to close things up. There's yeah. no crazy glue in the Congo, yeah. right? No, no. Uh, they, they use other kinds of stuff that's real sticky sap to kind of uh, mend things together. Um, from trees, they also use vines um, to tie up a bunch of stuff like soccer balls. They'll use a t-shirt, old t-shirt, a rag, and then they just use uh, these vines and tie them so tightly that it's, it becomes a perfectly round ball. Wow. Not perfectly round, but <laughs> round enough to kick around. Well, that's one of the things about soccer that people find appealing is that it's not that hard to create a ball, and mm -hmm. all you need is just flat ground. Right. You know, that's why it's such a good sport for people that don't have money. Yeah, they even play with half half uh, uh flattened balls <laughs> that, that they kick around because they still use it so yeah everybody's using the same ball mm -hmm. i guess it's not as good but yeah, they, get, they get beaten up and popped and everything because they sell the really cheap soccer balls anyways they're only going to last a couple weeks but now when you say the congo the congo itself <laughs> um is really huge right yeah. i mean i think if i'm not mistaken i think it's as wide as the united states of america yeah i think it, it might be like three quarters of the continental united states that's Something like that. It's the 10th largest country in the world, I believe. And so it's it's massive. It's it's only got about 74 million people, um, but I think 85% of those people, or maybe 80, 85%, live on less than a dollar a day. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's the well, flip-flops between the poorest country in the world and second poorest, but it is the most underdeveloped country. So least amount of roads, clean water, uh, education, uh, medical, like it's just the most underdeveloped. Like when I go to Uganda, I kind of get the feeling of whenever I come back from Africa to the United States and how it's just like, wow, this is really developed compared to there. When I go from Congo to Uganda, I feel like, wow, Uganda's really developed. They got 3D movies, a yogurt land. Um, <laughs> they, they have a KFC. Actually, they have like four or five KFCs now. Wow. Um, but how they, racist. <laughs> no. And then they have a uh, first thing that gets there KFC. Yeah, but oh, there really? it's uh, <laughs> what's next? Watermelons? Assholes. They uh, there are they? <laughs> they have <laughs> what is it? Um, oh, it's kind of fine dining at really? KFC. KFC is? Yeah, they have a waiter. Oh, really? Stuff. Yeah, it's wow. real nice. It's uh, you got a charging station for your your uh, smartphone in Uganda. Really? Yeah. Wow. KFC's pretty goddamn delicious. I know it's supposedly not good for you, but I'll tell you what, man, I, I indulge in KFC every couple months. I'll buy some KFC and I wait to, I, I either eat it or I wait till it gets cold and I eat it with hot sauce. KFC with some habanero hot sauce, get some El Yucateca, the real Mexican shit that you got to go to those funky grocery stores to buy or some, online. Some good stuff. Oh, dude, it's just not good for you. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> and we were talking about how they're putting uh, sucralose in Diet Pepsi. You need to figure out a way to make Kentucky Fried Chicken good for you. Yeah, that'd be great. That, that's that's the worst thing about all the tasty food is it's bad for you. Exactly. It's the opposite. Fuck, man. What's up with that? <laughs> this is first world problems, like literally. If yeah. anybody can talk about first world problems, it's you. I mean, a guy who goes from being a, a reality star on The Ultimate Fighter, fighting in the UFC, and then... All of a sudden, you're living in the Congo. For, for folks who don't know Justin's story, Justin's been on the podcast a couple times, and the story is it's compelling, it's crazy, it's heartwarming. It's just it's an amazing tale of a guy, you, who goes to the Congo and falls in love with these people that don't have a voice. Yeah. And, and, and you've done incredible things. And because of the money that was raised because your show's on here, there's the Fight for the Forgotten website. Oh, yeah. Uh, how many wells have you created now? Uh, we just celebrated, uh, as of yesterday, our 25th water well. Oh, so my 25. God. 
Yeah, and and what's so great about that to me is we were I was there for the first thirteen water wells, and now we've built. So what I love, and and that website that was up was we're partnered with Water Four now. It's waterfour.org, so mm-hmm. the number four. But um, man, it, it's kind of like we set up an exit strategy. Not not this is a lifelong goal for me, and I'll be going back wholeheartedly everything else. But we, our goal is to empower the locals to be able to do it themselves. And so I was there for the first 13 water wells. I had um, people from the director of implementation of Water Fork come in and teaching our guys hydrology, geology, all the different ins and outs of how to drill a well and protect it and um, all the sanitation. Um, but we're investing in the locals so that they can be the answer to their own problem, if mm. that makes sense. And that way, um, now we have 17 full-time employees. Wow. Yeah. And uh, we have two well drilling teams. There's 14 guys on that. And then when they go out into a community, we invite the community um, into the project. We want them to feel a part of it. Um, There's a lot of organizations out there, and I'm not trying to talk bad about them, but they'll go in with a million dollar drilling rig and Westerners that are, you know, water engineers, and that's great. Um, But they'll go into a community and kind of say, you know, get back. Uh, we're here to do this for you because oh. you can't do it for yourself. Um, and then the parts are so expensive, they're not going to be able to repair it when it breaks. And uh, there's a good chance, like, I think two and three of those expensive ones, or at least, you no know, one-third of them don't operate after a year of drilling it. And so what we want to do is go in there, teach the locals how to do it themselves, create a local economy for it, and, like, stimulate that, give people jobs, um, and then and then let the community feel a part of it. So we look for day laborers in the communities we go to and give them a job while we're there. Invite them in on the process, teach them some of it. We've we've acquired some of those guys that are just big, strong, love helping people. Now they're part of our team. Um, but the core of our team graduated from university in degrees of community development. So that's what we want to do. We want to go in there, empower the locals. And yeah, I'm a I'm a big part of it. And but what I want to do is be able to fan the flames and say, you can do it. Because a lot of international aid tells the locals that they can't do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe they don't say that, but it's kind of the way they go about attacking the problem. And you got to go about it in a way that, that kind of creates dignity for the locals instead of kind of robs them of dignity where they feel like they can't help themselves. That's a great way of approaching it. I'm really, I'm so happy you're doing that. I love that. I, lo- I love that you're trying to help these people become a part of this solution, you know, instead of like someone solving right. it for them. Mm-hmm. Now, when you um, when you're involved in digging these wells, and you're saying these expensive uh, wells break or the machines, right. like the pumps, how many yeah. parts are involved? Is it like this? Is like a, a lot of oh, stuff. Is yeah. there different ways to do it? It's a lot. It depends on how deep it is. Yeah, there there are multiple ways of of drilling a well. Um, the way we go about it is, I would say more simple but harder a lot harder labor intensive um but it's how so? just as safe um well we for instance like the the deep wells those are great and honestly like in a place like ethiopia or places where it's uh, the water tables are super deep you're going to need those so those are absolutely part of the solution we need those water engineers we need those people doing that but whenever say in the congo it's a place that is um, dangerous. There's lots of rebel groups, um, lots of instability. Uh, they're not going to drive a million dollar or half a million dollar um, drilling rig 
deep into the forest over these bridges that are notorious for collapsing and taking and washing away uh, big lorries or 18-wheelers. Um, they're not going to drive them across there. They can't get on the roads that we go on because they're heavy, they're dense, the parts break on the travel just out to the villages. And then once you get there, like going into the pygmy villages where we are, sometimes it takes it's taken up to two days, I think, to get our equipment into the village after we traveled there because we have to hike it all in. And we can hike an hour off the nearest road to the village. We can hike three hours from the nearest road to the village. And so we're hiking in over a ton. of. So when I'm saying this is hard, like our, our guys are, I think they're um, just as much fighters or more than I am because they're gritting down. They're hauling this stuff in um, from the augers. The way we do it is we use a tripod um, and we use augers and ropes and uh, pulleys and um, and we use these chisels that go down and they're single prong, triple prong. And so we have all of these tools we can use for each obstacle that we're going to hit as we go down in different geological layers. This is incredible. So you're, you're walking three hours with a ton of equipment. Yeah. Walking. Like uh, anywhere from gravel to bags of cement that are 100 pounds to uh, the rock breaker that can be 40 pounds, another one that's 80 pounds, and another one that's like 130 pounds. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, and we're taking in all the PVC pipes and uh, the galvanized pipes and, uh, uh, yeah, everything that uh, you can think of, sand, um, bricks, <laughs> and we have to hike all that in from, from the roadside um, wow. into the village. So it can take two days of going back and forth to the truck if we're walking that long with all the supplies. Two to three days of just walking with yeah. giant augers and steel pipes right. and sandbags. And no, normally it's like a day. We, we, we get there and we take all our stuff. But yeah, it's taken a long time before because... Uh, yeah, it's a fight to even get there to start the work. And, and then must, once we dig, man, that's the biggest fight. Yeah, you must be exhausted by the time you even get there. Yeah, absolutely. You're hiking with all this weight. Yeah. Wow. And then, and then once we start drilling, our average well, um, in other parts of the world where the obstacles aren't as, as big, um, they can bust out a well in a, a week, um, 10 days. But where we are, we average 10 to 16 days per water well. And so our guys are out there and living with the pygmies. That's, that's something that we selected every member of our team um, based on can they survive in the forest? And more than that, can they, can they love um, my pygmy family? Because that's important because other people around there, a lot of them don't love them, uh, hate them, or discriminate. And so we want to find people that are passionate about the people, passionate about the water crisis, and then that way, um, yeah, we can then teach them uh, and put the tools in their hands and invest in them. And so that's what the last four years has been for me, really investing in good people, people that, that believe in it. And then from there, we can uh, fan the flames for them. Is it perplexing for you to have discovered this place and, you know, to being alive in the 21st century with all the modern communication and all that and to to know that these people are out there and no one has tried to do this before and that the, you're, you're stumbling across these giant groups of people that don't have anyone looking out for them. Is yeah. That yeah. It's nuts. Um, I mean, I would say that I'm not the only guy that's ever tried to help them, but I would say that, um, maybe we're trying to take an approach and that's, what's so awesome about the university that I'm partnered with. They've been working with the pygmies for years and years. Um, the guy that's leading the way, the dean of the School of Community Development, he's been doing it since the year I was born. Um, and then he started with the, the university there for the last 10 years. Um, so I went to them to say, like, hey, how can we do this in a strategic way that the impact will last? That'll keep going on and on and on instead of, uh, 
uh, a lot of, I don't know if it's American culture or what, but it's so fast, you know, and uh, we want the quick fix. Mm-hmm. And the quick fix a lot of times isn't the, the best route. Um, that it, the, the results can just be a temporary one where we have a, I call it the show up, blow up, and blow out uh, technique. We show up, we, we do the show, we take the pictures, and then we leave and we never come back. And so what we want to do is be opposite. We want to build relationships, get in touch. We want to be like a family with them and then show them that, hey, we're not just here for, for land um, because that's what we started with first. We got them 2,470 acres of land. That's 10 square kilometers um, in the forest. Then we did the water, and you, now we're doing you food. You got them, meaning you purchased it for them or yeah. had it purchased for them? Right. We, we petitioned, um, lobbied, uh, and basically said, um, yeah, we went to battle saying, I mean, in a peaceful way, but said, <clears throat> these people are the first people of Congo. Not just that. A lot of people say they're the first people of Africa. They're one of the oldest people groups. They're so peaceful. They're so Well, loving. if that's true, then they're like the, that's the origins of humanity. You know, I was just reading this right. Bill Nye thing about um, about humans. It was just uh, some quote that he uh, had said about the human race, and that yeah. like it's been proven now that we are literally all one race, and the only thing yeah, that's, that's different great. is our our exposure to ultraviolet light and different environments have changed the way we look and how our you know bodies react to the environment. Well, but if I, that's the case, I didn't know that, but I love that standard fact. Well, we know that all people, as far as we know today, you know, we think yeah. the knowledge kind of grows and changes over the years, but. We know today that all human beings, as far as we know, came from Africa. So if that's the case, these people you're dealing with could very well be the oldest humans in the world. And it kind of makes sense if you really think about it. You know, I mean, that's where the primates evolved and came down from the trees and started experimenting and moving along and trying uh, different environments and spreading out throughout the land. Mm. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. You're like at the cradle of life. It's really a bizarre place. Yeah, why? Well, all I know is, man, it's the the culture there, their their hearts. Uh, the they're such sweet people, and I don't use that word a whole lot, but they're just they're sweet as can be. And um, and so whenever we went in um, with with my team, basically it was like local led. Um, I mean, I was I was in the in the picture, but kind of playing behind the scenes when it came to the negotiating um, and. They went in there, and it was the dean of the school of community development. It was my guy, that's uh, the director of Fight for the Forgotten in Congo, and they said these are the first people of Congo. Why is it that they have zero land of their own? Because shouldn't they have some land to call their own? And and we know that looking through history, and and whether it was whether it was you or whether it was your grandfather, we stole this land from them. We stole it. They have none of their own, and don't they have a right to have some land? And so that's kind of where. Um, yeah, we just lobbied on their behalf and then said, so if I bought the land in Fight for the Forgotten, if we would have bought it in our name, we would have gotten a five-year certificate and we would have had to renew things and fees and everything every five years. If we bought it in the name of the university there that we partner with, it would have been a 25-year certificate. But then at the end of the 25 years, we'd have to pay the same price that we purchased it for 25 years earlier. It would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars every 25 years, maybe more. And um, then we were thinking... It's kind of cool. Um, so in Africa, I would say a lot of the countries, at least, have, my understanding is that uh, it was it was the colonialists or colonists or however you say that, they were the ones that set up the boundaries of the countries. It wasn't the tribes. 
And so, like, say, Rwanda, the Hutu and Tutsi, they probably wouldn't have put their country together right there because they've had a long history of disputes with each other. So they wouldn't be in the same country. They would have been two different countries. Same thing in Congo. There's over 200 tribes. So um, in Congo, what, what's very, I don't know, here we're all America, America pride and, or Texas and things like that. But in Congo, it's about what tribe you're from. And so in a lot of parts of Africa, they're really proud about their tribe. And so on the government level, the strongest thing in court was buying the land in the name of a tribe because that's what they respect. That's what they value. And yet nobody was petitioning and lobbying on behalf of the, the pygmies. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to go in and say, these people deserve some land. And what we did was buy it from the people that originally stole it from them, whether it was them or their grandfather. And so that benefited the people that were basically oppressing them financially. And we gave them years and years worth of salary um, to work with us. And then on both sides, we said, um, so they benefited financially and the pygmies benefited by having their own land. You can't give them a water well without them owning the land that they're on. And so then we said, how can we give you both water? That's what the next step is. And the next step after that is food. How can we start a farming project, teach the pygmies how to farm correctly or farm really for the first time? Um, a lot of them worked for their former masters and stuff like that. But then um, with the Makpala, uh, which means non-pygmies, um, we're like, how can we teach you better farming practices? How can we, you need to plant your seeds deeper. You need to put... Uh, your seeds farther apart because they're not producing fruit because or the corn's only half of a cob instead of a full cob because your plants are basically choking themselves out. So we have three agriculturalists we're interning right now. They've already done a great job, but we're wanting to expand and from three villages to 10 villages. It's just an immense sacrifice that you've you've done, that you've taken on, and it's it's probably quite difficult to find people that have the same kind of passion for it that you have does it does it do you find that to be the case or yeah you, your passion has got to be infectious I mean a lot of people uh, I'm sure are, uh, like I have been moved by it so thank you but it's got to be hard to get people to go to the Congo though dude yeah well that's 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 the reason we invest in the locals they're there yeah <laughs> they're there in Congo and they they want I mean the people we selected f to solve the water crisis I mean, they, they know what it's like to go without clean water. Right. So if they can be the answer to that, they're going to be the ones even more passionate about it than me. Also, it's the old adage, teach a man to fish. Right. And, you know, fish for life. Give a man a fish and he's just he, yeah. one fish. That's yeah. it. And you're teaching these people. Now, what we got back to the, uh, we got off the subject of the wells, like yeah, the, the tripod and the auger. So what kind of a machine is involved in, uh, in digging this thing? Yeah, so we're, it's, it's been developed by Water 4, and they're awesome, uh, an actual machine that, that is small enough that we can carry it into the villages. How much does it weigh? Um, that, you know, don't, don't, oh, maybe I shouldn't quote myself on this, but I think it's around uh, 150, 150, 200. So you guys have um, to so carry that for hours. You could. Uh, some some of the land is only like a 30-minute hike off the nearest quote-unquote road that's just dirt and clay and silt and big boulders. Uh, but, uh, yeah, most of them are 30 minutes an hour, two hours, one one's even three hours off the nearest road. So, yeah, we got to hike that stuff all in. Wow. Um, but I would say that the manual drilling method, which has been approved by UNICEF and USAID and um, all these other like major organizations that say it can it can be just as clean, just as safe as the deep water wells as long as we do it to a high standard and keep a high integrity when we do it. 
um, which means we we backfill it with a, a clay sanitary seal. We put a cement plug on there so that way there's no sort of a bacteria or um, anything else that can get down into our well. We got to protect the water table. And so we do that every single time to a high standard. Um, but yeah, so whenever we're doing it, the machine is us. The, the manual drilling method, we have wrenches and those augers. And so those augers would look like kind of like a full like an ice auger. Uh, yeah, very similar. It, it would be um, almost like a coffee can with two claws on the bottom of it. And at the top, it's got a, a, a stem that attaches to a drilling stem. And then at the top, I mean, whenever you're starting from the first, uh, down the first two or three feet, like you can see the auger and you just... Um, so it's totally by range. hand. It's you almost like pummeling. twisting. Yeah, you just yeah. twist, almost like a pummel. Probably good for the forearms. Oh, yeah, huh? man. Dude, my forearms and my bicep. <laughs> well, my right bicep over here, my left tricep over here. From it. You got to um, switch it up, dude. I know. We need to We need to have the augers <laughs> changing, but as of now, it's just the same way. Um but yeah, so it's it's us just drilling, and we can go we can go up to 150 feet deep um, wow. in the ground. And so when we're doing that, it's, it's that's crazy. It's brutal. I think the deepest we've gone is like 70. So when you're doing 70 feet, do you, uh, what kind of a pipe is? Do you have to keep attaching so, a longer yep, and longer pipe yep, to it? Six foot, uh, or sorry, six meter, 20 foot long segments um, segments of of this drilling stem. That's a it's a square tube, that's really thick, really strong, really heavy. Um, and then we just we attach that at the bottom. We have a rope that's that's secured to it, so we can crank it up. Um, so we crank it up on the way up, um, but but we we drill down. So you're doing it all by hand. You get to yeah, a certain distance depth, rather, and then you put another segment on, and then you start off, start from scratch. Right. We we attach the the segments the deeper we go. So once we're uh, 20 feet deep, we got to attach another drilling stem. And once wow. we're 40 foot, we have two drilling stems. Once we're 60 foot, we have three drilling stems. And how do you know where to drill? Do you have one of those dudes with one of them wishbones? <laughs> yeah. Walking around. Did yeah, we talk about we, this before? No. No. I always wondered uh, if that divining kidding. stuff is real. I have, I have no clue. I hear, I hear some people say it's, it's legit, but I, I haven't ever seen it in action. I hate that expression. Yeah. Uh, I hear. <laughs> I hear. Yeah, no, I, I have no clue, to be honest, uh, the validity. I just don't know how it could possibly really work. Yeah. I have a friend who well, uh, had a well dug out here, and uh, he, they hired this guy said, huh? to come over, and they had yeah. the two sticks, and he's, like, yeah. standing there, and, like, he's telling them where to dig. That's not how we go about it. We, we, <laughs> we have a, a VES <laughs> machine. Which is basically, um, we hook up a car battery and some of these other like electronic devices and throw it in the ground and um, and then it kind of you have a laptop out there and and it shows us all this on a graph. Um, but the way I did it for the first 13 wells, now our team's been trained in that as well. So that's what's so cool about us partnering with Water Four is they're continually training our guys on the better drilling methods. But whenever I was out there, hey, we're in the rainforest. There's got to be water, uh, you know, underneath our feet. So let's let's dig. And uh, it was real tough the first time because we had eight failures um, over and over and over because we were uh, hitting sandstone. Now um. with the VS machine, we can see if it's sandstone, if it's quartz, if it's uh, granite, what what kind of rock is underneath, where the water table is. We know how deep we need to drill. Um, but at first, for the thir first 13 wells, we were just trial and error. We'd dig, and if uh, we even had one spot where we drilled for 10 or 12 days, and we hit water, but then all of a sudden we hit a layer of quartz underneath it. And so there was just about uh, six feet of um, clean water on top of this uh, quartz. It was deep, but we needed, we needed more. We needed to break through that quartz. 
and then be able to have hopefully what would what would be right underneath that is a rushing uh awesome aquifer for us to tap into that would make that well sustain a, a lot longer um but we couldn't break through it at that time we we just didn't have the right tools now we do but um but we just had to pick up and move <laughs> so we picked up moved uh, maybe a football field away and we went down the hill a little bit and said hopefully we don't hit the quartz uh layer and yeah just a football field away the geology was different um the, the water the recharge rate was great uh the water kept coming into our well um and then we we have to do a lot of different things like uh we have to plunge and bail and uh develop uh, the well to where it'll be clean. Uh, we put a gravel pack around it, um, all this different stuff to make so sure. So the gravel that, that pack gonna... acts as a filter? Is that how it works? Like kind a... of. And what it does is it keeps, um, so we, we put down a PVC, uh, like four inch, um, uh, sorry, it's, it's, um, but we, we put the pipe down there mm -hmm. and the gravel pack goes around it and the gravel pack kind of keeps any, any dirt, silt, sand, um, depending on what, what layer we are, we're in, it keeps that from coming into our well. So that way the water that is inside of our, of our casing, there we go, our four inch casing pipe, uh, that, that allows, it has like little slits in it. Maybe it would be like the size of a, um, a saw if you just kind of put a saw in there and it's every like centimeter apart from each other. And that way inside of our casing and before the water touches our pipe, like it's crystal clear, it's clean, we test it, all that stuff. And so the gravel pack keeps the sand, the, the dirt, the silt, anything out of our well. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible, man. It's just incredible the amount of uh, thinking and planning and all that it's involved in just getting people what everybody here just totally takes for granted, water. Yeah. It's taken us a month in one spot, a month, because we had a failed well. And, man, it's brutal. And sometimes, uh, I, I, man, I'm thankful that I was a fighter because sometimes you have to bite down on your mouthpiece and just keep swinging um, whenever you want to give up and you have a team out there that's tired. Um, so in between the failed well and the other one, we took two days off, but we can't go back to, we call it Bunia, um, the town where we can kind of rest and, and get some good food and come back out. What we did was go to a little market and get more dried fish and some more rice and some more beans. And we're like, hey, we're out here. Uh, we're not stopping till we, till we finish, till we get these people clean water. And when you look at what they're drinking, we, we do the water walks with them. I love telling my team, like, let's do the walk that they have to go on to get water. And man, I've gone 45 minutes, uh, an hour, walking with the women, because it's the women that collect uh, the water in that culture because the men are off in, in the fields or they're off hunting or they're off doing stuff. So um, the women go and get the water and it can be a 45 minute hour hike um, with these 20 liter jerry cans and uh, 20 liters, I think full is like 40 or 44 pounds whenever it's full. And they're going to get dirty water, dirty water. That is a 45 minute hike away from them. And they're bringing back one or two of those 44 pound jerry cans. So some of these Mabuti pygmy women, are literally carrying their body weight or more in water. And yeah, it's they're dirty. tiny people. Right. Wow. Yeah, most of the hunters, we were, were given this filaria treatment. Fil uh, filaria worm is this um, crazy kind of, it comes from black fly bites, but it's from like contaminated water that the flies go to and breed in. They come and they bite you, and then you can get, um, you can get river blindness from it. Um, What's river blindness? River blindness is a disease that also... There's a pygmy woman named Mama Mariamo 
and uh, I love her to death, and she's so great. Um, but she's lost five of her seven children due to this illness and her husband. Um, and there's a, there's a video on it too. And I think it's called the opportunity at freedom or something that's on the water foresight, but five of seven children are gone and her husband, and it's all waterborne disease. And she has river blindness. So not only has she lost all her, not all of her children, but five and her husband, but she's blind and she's blind because of, of river blindness. And so the, the worms get in your body and there's five different kinds of filarial worms and one kind of the worms like the babies go to your retina, I think, and they like attack and eat and live and sleep um, in the retina of your eyes until you have until you have no vision left. Fuck. Um, and four of the five don't don't do that. Um, but what it does is it, it irritates your skin. Supposedly, I've had it. Um, I've had to take the treatment. Um, whenever I took the pill, it made my body itch, and that's how you know if you had it or not. Um, is if your skin itches. And it's so killing it, the parasites. Right. The it's killing the worms. Killing the parasites. Um, and so what I was like, man, if I have this and if our team has it, cause we treated our well drillers first and some of them broke out in rashes and hives and really were itching. And it's just a part of it. If you go to that region, you're going to get it. Um, if you're out there long enough, uh, maybe not if you go for a week, but if you go for an extended period of time, you you need to at least take the treatment to make sure you don't have that. Wow. And so I was like, man, if I, if I supposedly had it and if, my team has it, then I know the pygmies, it's like ravaging them, you know? And so we went to the different villages and, and took a scale. And, and from that, we knew how much medicine we should give them. I talked to this guy, Dr. Peter Hotez. <clears throat> he's, um, he's, uh, an expert in, um, tropical diseases. Okay. And, uh, he said that he, this blew me away. He said that 100% of people that live in tropical climates have parasites. Oh yeah. I totally hundred percent believe that. That's that's insane. I, I know mean, it's insane, that, but you live there, you know it. Uh, this environment that you're in, that you're going and you're, t- you're 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 digging these wells. Like, describe to us, if you could, like, w- what is it like? I mean, you're t- you're talking about intensely dense ve- vegetation. What kind of like animal life and what kind of wildlife is around you and bugs? Oh yeah, bugs. It's nuts. Um, yeah, my my wife's first camping trip ever was in the Congo. Um, yeah, you took you showed us photos of it. It's oh, hilarious. Okay. Yeah. Last time you were here. Yeah. Um, so it was a big eye-opening experience for her. But the vegetation, it's nuts. So the Amazon is the biggest rainforest in the world, but the Congo is the second largest. But is it is the densest, the the thickest. It's the hardest to navigate through. Um, uh, there's parts in in Uganda that that barely touch the stuff in Congo, but they call it the impenetrable forest because uh, there's sayings that it's um, uh, I forget, but it's harder for a fish to swim through the or the rivers there because even the the rivers are thick vegetation and all this stuff, and um, in some parts. But dude, it's it's crazy. Like walking through and hiking through. I have a picture that's going to be in my book of of Ben walking, and I was like, how much of this do we have to walk through? It was we were literally macheting, uh, using a machete to get through um, to this pygmy village, and I'm like, dang, they walk through this every day where it's like. The, you're just walking through the thicket that's going across your face, going across your arms. There's bugs latching onto you while you're doing that. Um, there's mosquitoes like crazy uh, at all times. There's the ants. Um, the ants will literally look like a small creek or rushing river. Um, I've seen them at least, it, it, literally at least two foot wide, and you can hear them. 
you can hear them. It's two foot wide of ants. And it's just a black river because it's these ants that are just rushing, running in and out of things. Um, and yeah, so it's, there's bumblebees there that are like bright, uh, like the, or they have a bright blue or purple on their back. I'm kind of partially colorblind, but, but, uh, but I can see them and, and literally they're the size of a, a golf ball. They're like perfectly round. <laughs> oh they're perfectly round. A and golf so, ball? A golf ball for a oh bumblebee. Oh my God. For a bumblebee, hundred percent like like a golf ball and what we would do is emily and my wife brought a a, a racket that had those little it's like a little taser for for bugs um and it's in the shape of a tennis racket and we just there's one village uh andy Quaqua, and it's got um tons of those golf ball bumblebees and they're vicious too the butt on those things is just it looks wicked you don't want to get stung by it and whenever you do it it leaves like this it looks like uh, you got shot by like buckshot and a little bitty uh little bitty golf ball size whelp wow um but yeah we just smack those things with that little taser racket <laughs> thing um it's got to be one of the wildest places on earth right i mean next yeah. to the amazon it's probably like right up there yeah yeah it's it's nuts there's a uh, you know what? Maybe maybe this would give you an idea. Um, Jamie, maybe we get those pictures. Um, you can start with that. What is this right here? This I wanted to bring you a gift, man, um, from the Congo. But oh. uh, actually, go behind those pictures first and check out. Uh, but if you leave them, that would be great. But that's Sangi, and I knew you would really connect with this little dude. Um, we should have a picture up of uh Do you have a gin? The first one. And... Uh, and Sangi here is from, uh, we call it Tundu, and Tundu uh, just means hole, but we call it the hole in the forest. And um, he's a little dude, and, and in that village they make those, uh, those little handprints, um, or actually the cloth. So the cloth is this like bark cloth, and it's like a traditional way that the Mabuti Pygmies like make stuff for artwork. So that cloth um, that he's holding is made out of bark? Yes. Uh, actually reach in there and you'll see the the actual cloth that that's his so this is kind of a, a thank you um way that that they kind of gave me a few things to remember them by and to say like tell your friends and people that supported this like thank you um but sangi is he's probably 12 I would this say. is bark yeah it's bark wow it's bark cloth so it feels kind of like a canvas and uh sorry on the plane it got a uh, bent up a no, little how do but, they do, uh, how do they do this what are they doing um, I'm actually not sure. It's it's the bark, and they beat it down. They like beat it down, pressurize it or something, and and it, it, uh, or put a lot of pressure when they're doing it. What kind of tree is this? Do you know? I, I don't. I actually don't know. It's, but wi it's, uh, it's wild. There's so it's, many trees it feels out like, there. Feels like a flexible cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and they they'll do like their own kind of paintings and stuff. It's really like traditional, and you can like even Google. Uh, Bark cloth, and I think it comes up with wow, the pygmies. I'm gonna but get this frame, that, man. That's awesome. Thank yeah. you very much. That's so that, amazing, dude. That's his handprint. Wow. And uh, God, his hands are so tiny. Yeah, he's probably 12. None of them really know their their age, just because they don't really have a a calendar and and don't keep up with it and uh, don't have school or anything like no that. No iPhones. No iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> no iPhones. No uh, whatever those Google wow. Google calendars. Wow. But uh, the next picture, um, that's right there with you. But uh, it's their village, and there you go. Uh, on my on my right, so if you're looking at the picture on the left, that's that's Laringa, and uh, he's my translator and our director of implementation. To his right, the guy with the hat, 
that is uh, Leo May. That's a dope hat, by the way. Yeah, he's okay. awesome. That's the chief? Yeah, <laughs> Chief Leo May. And he's wow. such a great dude. Um, and he's the grandfather of Sangi. Uh, two over from me, the lady that I, uh, I have my arm around him, and then, yeah, right there, that's Chief Leo May's wife. And they're basically the parents of Sangi. Sangi's right in front of me, squatting down. Right. Um, right in front of my right leg. And uh, so they're raising him because his parents passed away. Um, but uh, what I want to show you about Sangi is he has a passion that's common with you. And I got to be there for two really cool things. If you can go to the next picture. And uh, that's the stack in your, your thing too. But here's the, the village at night. And that dude's got a sweet little guitar thing he made. <laughs> he, used a, he used wire from a tire. Uh, to make the stringed strings of the string instrument. Like but, steel uh, belted radial tire, like that kind of shit? Yeah, yep. I think so. I mean, it was like a old abandoned tire, and he just made this thing out of wood to wow. make a guitar. So he, he got the wire, like stripped it out of the rubber? Stripped it out of the rubber and made himself a stringed instrument. Wow. But if you, Sangi's over my back, and this is just us. This is how we learn the most about how we can help them. When we sit around the campfire with them, we, we've kind of, made a goofy name for it but we call it campfire university because that's where they <laughs> that's where they take us to school whenever we're sitting around we that's where we can hear the truth about how they're really treated um no one else is around like any of their oppressors and stuff um they're able to just be themselves sometimes we would pretend to be asleep um so other people would leave but now this is on their own land and they have like freedom to to just chill and relax wow um and then if you go to the next picture but uh, I just, um, okay, so you got that picture also, but that's uh, one of the first antelope, wild kind of bush meat that I got to eat. Um, so they call, they call everything bush meat, right? Yeah, basically. I've, I've had monkey, <laughs> Whoa. Uh, which now I realize uh, I probably shouldn't do that again. It's probably not uh, healthy, right? Yeah, you can get Ebola, and so that's how <laughs> Ebola Jesus from monkey Christ. and bats. And I shouldn't laugh, but uh, I didn't know. I didn't know about uh, that's how you get Ebola. And then all of a sudden the Ebola virus broke out like literally a month or two after I ate the monkey. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, geez. Uh, so this uh, antelope, did they shoot this with bow and arrow? Yep. They got wow. that one with the bow and arrow. Sangi got his uh, in the next picture. Uh, he got his with a spear. Whoa. And this is uh, his. Jesus Christ. Yeah. This is his first. What they do is they chase it into a net. So they string these nets up uh, through uh. the through the trees and then the men and the women sometimes too they go through with like leaves and other things and make sounds and they scare the antelope into their their nets i've seen them how they string this out these nets can be man they can be a football field in length and oh. then they scare the antelope into it and then they have to catch up to it before it escapes and uh they spear it so sangi speared that that's your little dude wow and then uh the next one's pretty cool. <laughs> Just holding the head. So they probably cook um, that head too, right? Oh, yeah. Cook they the brains. Eat, eat every part. Cook the tongue, mm -hmm. the eyes. Yeah, you don't waste anything. And that, and that village was the first time I saw them eating a turtle. And, like, I'm mean, not that turtle's that strange to eat, but they even eat the shell. What? Um, yeah, I know that sounds crazy. I, I saw them, I'm like, doesn't that hurt? But uh, they, would, they would cook it over the fire, and I guess it would weaken the shell, um, I think. Uh, but it still sounded really crunchy. So they're but chewing they on eat shell. The, eat the shell. Eat every part of it. Um, what the fuck, man? Yeah. But but I I mean for them though it's 
if that's the only food they got, you know. Wow, I, I have no it. idea. I, I saw a crocodile once eat a uh, turtle, and uh, and I thought that that crocodile was fucking crazy, but I, that's a crocodile. Yeah. I didn't think a human ate a turtle. Like yeah. a, a well, shell, I've, at least. Yeah, and I, I've been out in Louisiana with my grandpa fishing. Turtle soup. And, yeah, and yeah. well, a Cajun guy just came over because we kept catching turtles, and he would uh, he'd cut off the head because you can't really get your uh, hook back. And then he would just open it up and see if they had uh, eggs in them. And right there, without cooking it, without really cleaning it, he would just pop the eggs in his mouth. <laughs> and I was like, this guy's crazy. Whoa. So that was in Louisiana. It was down in the bayou. But uh, we can go to the next picture. So do these people have a hard time finding food? Or is this like f fairly common to eat all these different antelopes and whatever this is? What is this, um, a cat? This is Sangi's second kill. So I was there for his first kill and his second kill. And uh, they were months apart, though. Um, this is, I think they call it a large spotted genet and, uh, or I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's G E N E T. And it looks like a cross between, I don't know, a, a mongoose and a baby leopard or something like yeah. that. But I've been, someone tried to sell me okapi meat. Have you ever seen that animal? It's a, uh, it's got the butt of a zebra. It's got the body of an antelope and the head of a giraffe. I know it sounds crazy. It's only in the Congo. And that's what it looks like, at least. But it's in the Giraffidae family. Whoa. And so it's the only other surviving animal in that family. Um, it's actually with an eye. Whoa, look at that freaky fucking See thing. That? Yeah, I have seen these things before. They yeah. look fake. Yeah. It looks like a mythical creature. Yeah, like a... In the giraffe family. And uh, uh, someone's tried to sell me the meat of it. It's an endangered species. It wasn't a it big is? meat. Yeah, endangered species. And... I would have gotten in a lot of trouble if I got caught doing that. If you got caught bringing the meat back? probably even try to put me in life in prison or something. Really? Uh, probably, yeah. If you, you had the meat. Mm -hmm. But how would they know where you got the meat from? How would I they know, know that it was an okapi? Uh, he was selling me the butt. With, uh, oh, with I see. With the oh, things. wow, wow, wow. People eat zebras too, right? Um, I believe so. That's got to be insanely uh, tough meat. Yeah. So, but, but back to my original question: yeah. Is it difficult for these people to find meat, or is it yeah. like a really rich? <laughs> a lot harder than it used to be. A lot really? harder because a lot of the deforestation's happening, uh, and so I've literally been able to look up, see the uh, the sun, see that the sky's clear uh, through the canvas and stuff, and then it sounds like thunder, um, and it's because they're cutting down these huge trees, and so that makes it really hard for the pygmies. Um, to hunt because the animals are skittish. They get scared. They get frightened. They, they they're a lot tougher to get Wow. Um, so yeah, there's the that's when he came back and first showed me This uh, tiny little uh, cat thing. Yeah. And so how do they cook that? Um, they skin it they keep the meat or sorry they keep the skin to uh, make a hat or a little like trophy out of um, And then that's the spear he got it with that was a smaller one his grandpa has one that he killed a elephant with um but yeah, they, they put it over a, a tripod of sticks, and then they wrap the meat in uh, leaves, and they kind of smoke it um, so that it, it, it seems to last. I mean, they smoke it, and it lasts longer. Um, so they dry it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Um... And then and then they'll, they'll soak it again and, like, boil it so that it kind of gets back. It's not so dry huh. um, at times. Like, I mean, it, it's so supposed to do a fish, too, and other things. This is a, so it's a method of preserving. It's sort mm -hmm. of like... Um, the Native Americans did that with buffalo, and right. they do that in Mexico too. Um, they uh, they they take the buffalo and they make really thin slices, and they dry it in the sun, mm. and then they um, they rehydrate it again and cook it. 
And so kind of like with their situation of them being the first citizens of Congo, that's the, what we always use with them, the terminology, similar to the Native Americans and what we did here, um, pushed them off their land, took their land from them. That's what happened to the pygmies. And so that's kind of, it's similar to, to something that I was thinking is, hey, we could get these people these little kind of reservations. We have 10 different plots of land. All of them are 247 acres or eight of them are. Two are, one's like half a square kilometer, so like 120, and the other is like close to 500 acres. Um, and so, but that's their land they'll pass down. And what we want to do is, on one of them, we started replanting trees that are targeted for deforestation. So one of our agriculturalists that were interning, we gave him a goal. His name's Dramani. Great dude. Um, we want him to replant a thousand trees. And we're like, hey, you can feed the, anyone that helps you, you know, the pygmies, give them breakfast, lunch, dinner. Uh, and we'll give them like a day's wage and teach them how to to to, to make money um, and how to you know work for the first time making money. And so when he came back, we were blown away because he had replanted thirty five hundred trees. Wow, <laughs> thirty five hundred. So that's also what we want to do too is uh, preserve their culture. They love the trees. Um, they don't cut down the big ones. So the market, where where are these trees going to? Because this uh, is an issue that's going on in the Amazon like, as well. There's like mahogany. Hardwoods, That's out there. Right? Yeah, big, heavy, heavy hardwoods. Um, and they take a long time to grow, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, they take a long time. So like they're chopping down 100 and, yeah. and they're doing it on a daily yeah, basis. Like trees that you could drive an 18-wheeler through. So that's why there's there's times that a tree falls and I'm like, is it about to rain? Is it thunder? Because it's, it's this huge, massive, old tree that's being cut down. You could literally drive in it, like, like those, the redwoods they have? And yeah, I would, I would say they're not, they're not as big as the redwoods, and some of them are that big, but, but some aren't. I mean, some you could drive a, a Mini Cooper through. <laughs> wow. But, uh, but yeah, some are, some are massive, and they're just cutting them down. Um, just the perspective that you must gain from being in this insane environment, it's, it's got to be a really, uh, uh, for a lack of a better word, enriching experience. Yeah, I mean... It's so good for the soul, I would say. Just your heart, you you feel um, you feel like you're a part of something greater than yourself, something yeah. bigger than yourself. And I would say that that's where a lot of my struggles in life came from was when I was so um, focused on something small, which is myself. I was mm. like magnifying glass or putting myself under a microscope in my life. And it's like whenever I took the focus off of me and put it on others, like it, it gave me such a, a greater sense of purpose in life of, man, I don't need to live for myself. Um, like this problem, like what if I could be part of a, a little a little part, a little link in the chain um, to help, to, to be in the, in the problem. In whatever small problems anybody here yeah. has in comparison to the issues that they have there, it, it's, it's one of the things that happens to people when crisis uh, takes place when there's any sort of a crisis like after 9-11 one of the weirdest aspects of being in New York was how friendly everybody was mm. like everybody yeah. kind of had this newfound perspective they had this new instead of dealing with the stress and the the, the, the grind of the big yeah. city and the traffic and all the nonsense and all the aggro behavior that people normally mm. had it wasn't there it was like people were friendly and they were nice and kind it's like they had put it in perspective because of the attack right and it's just it's a shame that human beings are like that, that we, we have to have something kind of crazy happen to us to for us to, us. Pre yeah. Yeah, to unite us and to appreciate. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, and I would, just, say, I would say there it's almost like they are, are like that, like kind of what you're saying about New York. And not that 
they're One constantly always, like that, they're right? They're constantly like that. Yeah. They're constantly like appreciative for anything that they get, anything that they get for that day. The, even even whenever they're working underneath their slave masters and they're getting um, a minnow for a full day's labor or two bananas um, for a family of four or five that are literally working from sunup to sundown, they get two bananas to share. Like... They're st- like whenever we talk to them about it, yes, they'll they'll say we need more. We th- this is slavery. This is slave labor. Like it's terrible. It's you know, but whenever they get that food at the end of the day, and like they're thankful for it, like because they gotta have it. But the oppressors use that as a way to keep them hungry, so that they have to come back the next day and work. Yeah, similar story. Sense. Yeah, that's that's the story as old as time, right? Yeah. Hey, could we show that next picture in that? Sorry, I'll. I'll try to bust this out so this i love this is sangi's uh grandmother she's wearing bins uh, bins on the the right with a blue shirt he's our director and uh, uh kakura is behind him in the blue shirt and right in front of him with the sunglasses on uh is mama leome what is she wearing around her waist leaves leaves yeah leaves she so she tied uh vines and leaves together um and yeah whenever uh, if if cameras probably weren't out like they would like it doesn't it's not a big deal like clothes or not clothes or anything like that but whenever we bust out a camera because it's like hey this is going to be a cool celebration so why we bust out cameras is different than the show up blow up and blow out so that we have pictures what's so cool one of the greatest gifts i've ever given mama leome uh is a picture of herself a picture of her and sangi a picture of her and leome um, what we do is we print up these pictures, we get them laminated, and they've never had a picture of themselves, ever. Wow. And so we're able to go back and give them these pictures, and, and they'll always be able to cherish and remember this moment. Do they have mirrors? Um, there's a There might be a half-broken mirror that's, like, I mean, very tiny. Um, like a, in a, a, in a woman's compact? Village. Yeah, right. And it might be, like, crushed or broken, and they might have that for the whole village. Wow. Um, so it's... But some places, no. Some places, not at all. Some places, I give them my iPhone, and they get to look at themselves, and they're just like, oh, my goodness, because they've only seen themselves really in, uh, in in reflection of water and stuff like that. And How long before they start taking selfies and give them the iPhone? Is it immediate? Uh, <laughs> Does it funny. make the kissy face or no? <laughs> right. No, I've even I've even had the, uh, the duck face um, or duck lips, but uh, I... I Man, on my my Instagram at the the big pygmy, there's some pictures of me actually giving this village uh, uh, pictures. And dude, some of their expressions whenever they get to see a picture of themselves for the first time, it's like the the craziest looks in their eyes seeing themselves on a piece of paper. Yeah, I would only um, imagine. I can only imagine seeing yourself in a photograph for the first time. Yeah. Wow. But uh, another thing that we just completely take for granted. Right. Oh, there's a. Uh, I also brought you something that uh, that's inside that bag. Um, I know you're a hunter. You like uh, that's why I got you those hunting pictures. I also got you some like handmade uh, knives Whoa. that are uh, from there, from the Congo. How do they make these? Um, by hand, they like hammer on them, and then uh, where do they get the metal? Yeah. Oh, they sort of like they're like butter knives. Yeah, it looks just like a American. They made this. Uh, yeah. How? <laughs> Actually, Josh helped me come up with a joke to try to 
uh, <laughs> this is a joke. Yeah, that that um, one's a joke because uh, I was like, what? But <laughs> I try to get a joke so on the comedian. Real. This is okay. the real one. Oh. You <laughs> rascal, you! I was like, dude, there's a copyright on this. <laughs> no, that one look, that one looked too pretty. It was from our hotel. Uh, oh wow! But what this a, one's the real deal. Um, so, so they made it out of a nail. Some of the 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 people that were working on like doing deforestation and like cutting down the trees and they'll they'll build themselves uh ladders and so they're able to take the old nails out of these ladders and stuff um and make themselves a knife and so that's actually handmade from sangi's uh grandfather the chief chief leome is his hand so small that he can actually use that or do they use it with like a few fingers he might use it with like three but yeah his i mean the dude might be four foot eight four foot nine um, the the average height of a Mubuti pygmy man is four foot seven. Um, so, so yeah, they, their hands yeah. are smaller and stuff like that. And so they, um, fit I think this into a piece of wood somehow. Mm-hmm. Grab the other one. I'm not actually. They push it down on that wood. That's oh, that's so the original the way. You see how it's a a nail. Wow, this is nuts. Yeah. So. Wow. So this nail flattens out to be that wide. That's mm-hmm. incredible. And what he found was an old uh, piece of. So in Congo, the Belgian, Belgian Congo with like King Leopold II, um, who was due to as evil as Hitler. Um, he, I mean, they, they say during his like reign of Congo, he, he, he said in, in Europe that he was like the savior of Congo, that he was helping all the Congolese, but really he was extorting them for, for mainly rubber uh, and ivory. And there was a estimated 20 million people. And there's a book called King Leopold's Ghost. And the guy had a big old beard, kind of like I have in one of those pictures uh, with, with Sangi. Um, but uh, but what, what they say is that it's an estimated 10 million people, half the population of Congo, that, that he was responsible for killing and murdering. Jesus Christ. So they call that like the African Holocaust or one of the first Holocausts because there was you know, six, some, I mean, I'm not sure about the Jewish Holocaust, six million or something like that. Um, but this was eight to 10 million people. Half the, half of the Congo was, was murdered and everything else just over rubber, the rubber boom and, uh, and ivory. And I had, I had a slingshot for you from like the original rubber, uh, but it kind of like rotted and broke. So anyways, the original rubber. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's like white whenever it first comes out and it's, it's it's uh they just made a slingshot. It was Sangi, and so I brought it. But, so do they uh, hunt with those? Yeah, they they know like birds and stuff and mm-hmm. trees. Um, so I've seen them eating parrots and African gray they parrots, eat parrots and stuff. Yeah, they wow. eat anything they can get, man. Um, they'll they'll knock. Uh, and it might sound bad to our culture, or whatever, but this is their food, you know. So, um, but they'll they'll shoot like a nest and uh, whatever comes down, you know, if it's baby birds or mama bird or eggs or something like that that's that's free game so yeah i mean we are very privileged that we can just go to a supermarket and buy food Mm -hmm. so we have these ideas of what you should and shouldn't do but when you're starving to death you you will eat whatever you can get a hold of yeah and whenever the outsiders make it so much even harder for you to hunt because they're cutting down the trees and it's making the animals skittish and scared and so much harder for you to find them yeah so there's no regulation whatsoever on how many trees they can chop down not at all in in a I would say, I mean, this might not be a real stat, but in my mind, 80, 90 percent 
of the logging in Congo has got to be illegal. They just go out there. Here's a big old tree. Let's cut it down because it's worth so much money. And who was doing this? What what country? People uh, all over. And they'll bring in trucks from Kenya and Tanzania and Rwanda. And um, there's some, like, big businessmen that then sell these hardwoods to China, the U.S., Brazil. I mean, just different big countries that they send it out. And I've, I've seen these hardwood... Uh, on these roads, sometimes three-fourths of a, I'm serious, three-fourths of an 18-wheeler or a, lo- a lorry is what we call them there, um, it could be completely sunk in mud or it can just be fallen off of a face of a cliff um, because it's so overloaded. Um, they fill up these containers just so full with this heavy, heavy, heavy wood because if, if they can get it back, um, then they're going to make a ton of money off of it. Um, so they just overload it because it's so hard to get from point A to B um, to like Mombasa and Kenya to where they can ship out this stuff. It's Um, just so depressing sometimes when you think about the damage that people are capable of and the insensitivity that people can exhibit. Yeah. It's just that that they just go there and just take all that wood, chop it all down, fuck all these people over. The, the, The just the fact that it's a small amount of people that are doing it too, but yet it affects an enormous amount of people worldwide. Absolutely. Absolutely. From, I, I think, I think they said, um, I forget where I got it. It was a reputable source. Um, but the size of Texas has been cut down from the Congo rainforest in the last, like just 20 or 25 years, last 20, 25 years of the rainforest in Congo, the size of Texas, which that's where I'm from. I mean, it's huge. It's 13 hours from East to West, maybe more, uh, in Texas on good roads. Um, so just to imagine like the size of of the impact that that's insane making is nuts that's insane and then to think about the fact that it takes hundreds of years to replenish those forests if they do get replenished because right. the environment that they're growing in it gets changed as soon as you chop everything mm-hmm. down then the sun bakes the land and yep. then there's less rain and this yep. fuck man yep, absolutely that's got to be such a strange <clears throat> place to go while you're there and you're trying to help and you're trying to replenish and, and help these communities and give them water and help yeah. them sustain. And then you're hearing these trees fall and yeah. knowing that there's just these insensitive people just chopping down trees left and right and fucking yeah. the whole thing up. Yeah, it's nuts. Like uh, when when my wife came, we walked through a field that had been just ravaged by the, the illegal loggers and stuff. And um, she was blown away because these trees were so much fallen on their sides. They were so much taller than I was. Um, like it made me look like a dwarf by them. Just enormous, enormous enormous old trees. trees. Yeah. And, uh, literally the first trip she came on, which was only like mm, six months before that, like all those trees were there, (laughs) all those trees were there and it was, and now we walk into it and it's probably like 10 or 20 acres of trees that were just leveled in that amount of time. And the way that they were doing it there wasn't by, these guys weren't using the big chainsaws and everything else. They were just like going at it with axes and stuff. And uh, a lot of it actually isn't just for the the hardwoods. Um, a lot, I mean, I would say that's the majority of the problem, but another big problem in, in, in Congo or Sub-Saharan Africa is the charcoal everyone uses for cooking. Um, they get it from these trees. They cut them down, they throw, uh, they chop them up into little bits, and then they they throw uh, a big mounds of dirt over them, and they set them on fire, and they smolder it for two, three weeks, I think. 
and then it comes out in these kind of hard compressed mm -hmm. uh, little charcoal uh, pieces and um, so then that's what they cook with everywhere and it's uh, so that's that's another thing that that's a big issue God you know there's a photograph of a, a tree uh, somewhere in California I forget uh, where it was but one of the captions was this this tree is somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six hundred years old or something like that it was like they were talking about like when this tree would first came up columbus was sailing wow and this is a, a tree that you could see today like and there's trees that are i, mean, I don't know what is the oldest tree i mean how old are trees nah, man i'm not i'm not even sure i bet but there's a thousand year old tree somewhere yeah i mean in the congo it's got to be the oldest i mean that's got to be the oldest right yeah probably One or up there it's uh it's it's crazy and then and then there are times that that the trees just the cycle of the forest um you, these trees can fall over um but uh like we we took a family of five to the hospital here's one right here methuselah thousand trees a pot five thousand yeah a bristol cone pine tree from california's white mountains is thought to be almost five thousand years old oh my goodness the oldest non-clonal tree in the world the exact location of the gnarled, twisted Methuselah is a Forest Service secret for its protection. Wow. Wow. That's insane. That's crazy, man. I had no idea they could be 5,000 years old. And then some asshole can just come along and... Just cut it down, man. Make charcoal with it. Yeah. And some, something nuts, like, uh, I, I, I came in here, and remember I got had gotten sick? Yeah. And, uh, and I had to postpone on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyways, I went to a hospital down in, uh, or up in Valencia, I think. And they had thrown me in a room for three hours, and they were thinking about getting hazmat suits out and all this stuff. Because they I, thought you might have had Ebola because you came right, back from Africa, right? Yeah, right right after the Ebola crisis. Whoa. But it had been, um, I had been back for like two months or something, or maybe even close to three. And uh, yeah, they were uh, going all crazy and stuff. And this is just a stat that, that I like to it's something that grips my heart so that's why i want to say it now but um man i i think i looked it up right before i got in in here and it was around eleven thousand people that ebola took took out eleven thousand people that's a ton it's a ton it's a brutal crisis but i just remember the uproar that that and the fear like the the outcry that that happened publicly all over the united states and only a couple people got it here yeah um and then and then still that's terrible um but whenever I compare that, 11,000 people total in this Ebola crisis, and then the stat for children, and this is on Water 4's website and stuff, and, and on ours, and dude, it's what I want to fight and let people know, because there should be a real public outcry, an uproar, that 5,000 kids, 5,000 kids under the age of five years old die every single day, every single day because of dirty water because of waterborne disease, because of waterborne illness. That's a legit stat from like UNICEF or one of those like legit places. 5,000 5, a day. day. It's like, it, it fluctuates from like 4,700 or something to 5,000 a day. And like for me, man, I've, I've, I've held two of those children, you know? I've, I've, I've dug the grave, I've had blisters on my hands, I've had a little dude named Andy Bo, his blood on my hands. And like, like bro, it, it's, it, it wrecks me and like that's why I'm so passionate about this thing and like 
like I come back and like I, I get it. A bull is terrible and we need to knock it out because it can take out so many people. But why? Why are people not like why don't they have their eyes open, their ears open, their heart open to hearing about 5,000 kids dying every day? I've been to the funeral of five other kids. I've seen the grave of nine or ten others besides that. Like, and these are just among the pygmies. I've been to the, I've seen the funerals going on of the, of their oppressors, like the, the slave masters and the Makpala, the non-pygmies that surround them. Their kids are dying of dirty water. And it's not, I don't, I don't mean to go crazy, but. No, it's not crazy at all. It's a, that, that statistic is crazy. 5,000 a day. A day. And they're under five years old. So, I mean, I don't know how many with the six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, you know. I've been to the funerals of those kids. We, we are very strange about what we have, what we focus our attention on. And the Ebola thing is just something that was over here because yeah. we were worried about it coming over here and being a problem it. over here. We, we're, it's so convenient for people to not look at impoverished third world countries, people that are just, they've always been in this sort of state of poverty. So yeah. we just sort of accept them at being like that. And we don't think that they necessarily, that they have to live the way we live or have access to clean water and medical. We just don't even think about it. We worry about Cecil the Lion. Yeah, you know this oh, the dude, fucking outrage about Cecil the lion where everybody's going nuts and freaking out Yeah, I mean look poaching's terrible. It's awful. It's a, animals are beautiful It's you know, I get it But the the way we re reacted to that mm -hmm. to know your statistic to know yeah. that what you just said that 5,000 little kids die every day from dirty water and people aren't freaking out about that I think it's like every 20 seconds that's insane. Man. I think it's every 20 seconds. That's really hard to swallow. Yeah, and bro, like, I... Uh, wow. That was, that was my 5, second. 5,000 is... That's that's so crazy. Just think about 5,000 dead bodies every day and have them being little kids. Yeah. I, wow. And, and, and the thing that really wrecked me with that was... So I spoke at this university in, in Oklahoma. It's, it's slipping my name, um, or the name's slipping me, but their students... Um, this is right when I got back from Congo, and they had heard about what I was doing. Um, I think it was Southern. Um, it's in Oklahoma City, uh, SNU, and uh, and they they said, "Come, come, speak to our students. We wanna we wanna try to raise enough for a water well." And um, and dude, they set out in their courtyard. They set out in their courtyard five thousand white flags, and this is a massive courtyard. They set out 5,000 little white flags, and on it said the stat that's 5,000 kids every day die of dirty water. And so I saw that right before I went up and spoke, and I went and saw the courtyard, and it just wrecked me because, like, for me, like, the people that see that, like, the stat can go in one ear. It can, it can jack with you for a little bit. It can mess with your mind. It can mess with your heart. Um, but it's so easy to go in one ear and out the other. Right? Well, once you sleep, you know, you're not going to wake up thinking about that just from seeing those white flags. And so I, I grabbed one of those white flags and I, and hopefully some of the people just from seeing those flags will get it. But like I had to write Andy Bo on the back. And, and then when I got up and spoke, I showed him, I'm like, Hey, every one of these white flags, you see it, you saw it. Like it's a terrible statistic, but this, the real statistic is that each and every one of those flags has a name. Like it's a person, it's a human being, it's a little kid. And like he didn't have to die of dirty water, not in today's age. Not in today's age when we have the answer to the problem. When we know what we can do about it and just people decide not to or, or, or like you said, make the uproar about Cecil the lion. 
I mean, I, every American probably knows the name Cecil the Lion, or at least 90% probably do. And like, I bet not even 10%, not even 5% know that 5,000 kids every day are dying just I don't because of dirty water. I don't even think it's 1%. Right. I, I didn't know it was that many. That's nuts. Yeah. It's just, it's hard to internalize those numbers too. Even if you hear that number, it goes in your head and it sort of bounces around. There's no, there's no like point of reference. reference. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's for me, man, like I, I absolutely a hundred percent like, so that was when I, I gave the chief, Andy Bo's chief, uh, my, my first promise I ever made the pygmies, which was, was uh, we had buried him and he had told us that he was rejected hospital treatment twice. Um, so he didn't just die of waterborne disease, but, um, his, his other brother, his father had died of waterborne disease and his mom was all alone now and she couldn't even cry, bro. Whenever I, I met her, um, or whenever I, uh, I saw her at this time, like she was, uh, she was, she was topless and I could see every single bone in her sternum, like every single rib attached to her sternum because she was so hungry and she was so malnourished and she was so thirsty. And so our team went and we got, we got mangoes, passion fruit, um, or mangoes and passion fruit juice, uh, rice and tilapia. And we brought it back and fed it to her. And it wasn't maybe 10 minutes. And I, I was wondering, is she in shock? Why is she not crying? Um, what, like, why am I messed up from this so much more than the mother? Um, and it was because she was so malnourished. She just didn't have the energy to produce a tear over her son's death. So she got the mango, she drank the passion fruit juice. It wasn't 10, 15 minutes later that then she started sobbing because she had like that sugar and that energy a little bit. And then after that, like, dude, the next day was so brutal. And um, I had blisters on my hand from digging the grave. And that's when the chief came up and said, the first time we went and got treatment, they told the mother, you're too dirty to come in here. Um, and she said, well, can you give them treatment? I know it's just a pill or a shot. And they said, do you have money? She said, I'm a slave. I don't get paid money. And they said, well, then go away. And then, oh. and then the second day, the, the whole village, and this is like 85 or 100 people, they, they grab um, everything they can, which was uh, like almost two dozen eggs. They, they brought a chicken. Um, they brought a bag of charcoal. Um, they brought firewood. And then they were able to beg because they don't make money, or these ones hadn't at this time. And they, they were able to beg enough for three and a half dollars worth of Congolese franc. And three dollars was the treatment. Three dollars was where I think it was a dollar for the pills that would have helped Andy Bo. They're probably too late for the pills to work, but maybe three dollars um, for the shot, the injection that would have helped him quicker. And it was something like forty-five dollars. Um, it's in the book. I got the real number. Um, forty-five dollars for his casket that I buried him in. And and it just like blew my mind that like the the oppressors, the people that the Makpala, the, the non-pygmies that surround the pygmies were thinking like these people are so worthless or, or they're like animals or whatever that it's, it's easier for us to let them die or cheaper for us to let them die than to take care of them. And, um, and so that's when the chief grabbed me and pulled me to the side and said, F.A., which F.A. Osa um, is my first pygmy name. It means the man who loves us. And um, he pulled me aside and said, F.A., like, we don't have a voice. Nobody knows about our suffering. Can you help tell people? Can you be a voice for us? And that was when I said yes. And that because I, I couldn't promise them clean water. I couldn't promise them land. 
like I didn't know how all of that stuff was going to go, but I knew that through MMA and through like some of the other stuff, like a platform that, Hey, I can, I can at least help these people have a voice of some sort, even if it's just with a hundred people. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I can help them have a voice. Dude. Whew. Boy, Justin. Sorry, bro. I went heavy. You, no, but don't apologize at all. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for just being you, man. That, but that the, that what you've experienced and what you're talking about is so removed from almost everyone that lives here. When we yeah. talk about poverty in America, our poverty is almost ridiculous in comparison mm. to the poverty that they, these people are experiencing. Right. What mm. you're what you're talking about is just it's not even human. I mean, it's it just it's so, it's so outside of the realm of our imagination to even imagine living in a world where someone won't give someone a three dollar shot or whatever it costs to treat a baby that's yeah. dying, and what this woman have? can't even cry because she doesn't have any food. She doesn't have enough energy for tears. It's, I can't, I can't imagine that world, and you continue to go back there to try to help these people, and now you are going to fight like not just not just like try to build them wells not just try to help them and get them food but now you're you're going to fight in bellator and try to raise more awareness for this what what is it man you you make this decision you decide to come back to america you're training uh in dallas right you're training yeah, a team, team takedown take where uh, Johnny Hendricks, former welterweight champion, trains big, giant, modern facility, one yeah. of the best places in the world, and you are preparing for this fight. But your main goal—you love the sport—but your main goal is to try to bring awareness yeah. to the pygmies. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a crazy way of a, a roundabout sort of a way of getting attention to them to, yeah. to compete in a sport and mm -hmm. arguably the most brutal sport in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, I, I always thought I could only do, or for the last four years, um, almost five or five, yeah, five, I, um, I thought I could only do one or the other. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, like the, the, my family, the, the people there, like I'm not ever going to give that up. And like, so it's worth it to me. If I never had to fight again, fine. So be it, you know, like, uh, that's okay with me. Um, so I was just so focused on that and building the team and getting something legitimately started that will really impact them long term, um, not just a flash in the pan. And um, but I saw fighting as something that that is a platform. I mean, I'm 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 here with you now just because I was a a, a fighter and and then the other stuff that came about. But um, that's the link together. And so. I, my wife started talking to me and other people started talking to me and kind of said, well, what if you could do both? And yeah, fighting the lifespan of it, that's kind of like a flash in the pan. It's just, it's a short limited window. And, um, and the thing, the problem there is going to take life lifetime worth of dedication. And so what if, what if for a season in my life for, it could just be a year or two, I'm planning on it being five to seven years. That way I can really make a run if I can. Um, that's what I want to do. Um, and what if that can set, set it up 
in a way that, that the long-term solution and impact is bigger, better, greater, more sustainable. People know about it more. Um, and people want to get involved. Like, I, I, I think that it's hard kind of living in the two different worlds, uh, going back and forth, um, because they're so different. Um, I kind of feel like I don't, like I, I go there and I see what's wrong and I'm like, oh, it's not, it shouldn't be like this. But then I come back here and I'm like, ah, what's wrong here? And it shouldn't be like this. And so I feel like I kind of don't necessarily belong in either one. And if I do, I belong more in the forest with them because our, our, our hearts are so connected. And so it's like culture shock here and I don't get culture shock there at all. Um, I love it. But what if you get culture shock when you come back to America? Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. From being in the Congo. Mm hmm. Uh, the culture here messes with me in what way Kardashians that kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Yeah, that and uh, and I went to to Popeye's right when I got back uh, and it was after I had buried Andy Bo and it was my second trip back coming back that was in like 2011 I think or maybe 2012 and I get back and I'm in a I, I go straight to Popeye's and it's in Atlanta and I walk inside and there's this mom and daughter and they're there with a group that's going to do like some kind of international aid in Haiti. They got their Haiti shirts on and it wasn't too long after the earthquake and stuff, maybe like a year and a half, two years after. And the daughter is sitting there and she's saying, uh, I'm going to get a Coke and I'm waiting behind them at the, the Coke machine. And so she starts filling up with the Coke. Her mom goes, pour that out. You're not going to have that. And she goes, Mom, they don't have Coke in Haiti, which Coke's in Congo. Coke's everywhere. Coke's like, I, that was the first thing I wanted to say. Like, hey, there's, don't worry, guys, there's Coke there. Um, but, but right after that, like, the mom's like, if you drink that, you're grounded. She goes, Mom, you're going to ground me over a Coke. And then they just went back and forth bickering. And then all of a sudden it turned into, you are grounded two weeks when we get back. Then all of a sudden the girl got pissed looked at her mom and said, Mom, I hate you. I hate you. And she stormed out. And this is at the airport. They got their shirts on. They haven't even gone on their trip yet. And I'm just thinking, like, I wanted to grab them, not in a mean way, but grab them and just say, look, love each other. Like, you're fighting over a Coke. You're fighting over sugar water. Like, stop. Like, stop it. Like, love each other. Like, you're about to get a rude awakening. When you go to Haiti and I've been there and I've seen the people walking through snow drifts of garbage to take a bath and walking back out and having to climb up that snow drift of garbage to get out after they took their bath. And I've seen them digging in the trash to find food. I've seen kids sniffing glue to fall asleep. Like, I'm like, you guys are about to get wrecked. And like, it wrecked me too. Cause I'm like, I just buried a kid over dirty water and now you guys are fighting over sugar water. And so like, and I'm not, uh, like this is one thing I don't want to offend people in a way of like saying our culture is terrible or bad But I want to point out certain things that like life's bigger than our small problems and If we can get our eyes off of those small problems and get get our eyes onto the big picture Like you'll do a lot of good. It'll change a lot of things in our own own lives Our own hearts our th- own relationships. I think with people. It's a it's just simply a matter of perspective And yeah. when we don't have real problems small problems become real problems yeah. like this coke thing for this little girl right. I mean it's probably You know, it's it's just a natural thing that human beings do in some sort of a weird way We just yeah. lack perspective if it's not right in front of our face. Yeah God, that's so crazy. 
Yeah, so I went into a long story there, but uh, no, it's a great story, and I okay. can imagine that. I mean, that would cause culture shock yeah. for you. You you must mm -hmm. be just like so baffled by it all. Yeah, and I went I went to one thing. Water Four has been an organization that has like believed in us since the very beginning, kind of like you. Um, whenever I had come back and I'd seen you know the two things, but practically I hadn't done anything yet. I hadn't like gotten land, started water. I didn't know. I just had the passion and the dream, and you put me on here and let me tell people that. Water Four kind of did the same thing, and um, uh, they they gave me the tools when I had none, the the training and knowledge when I didn't know anything, and just got behind me. But I got back, and three days later, I was at their gala, and um, and uh, and it was awesome. It was a great event, and man, I was crying because they did a video um, of me in the Congo, and um, then I had to get up and speak, and it was real tough. But I, I I go right from there, and three days later, I'm at kind of like a black tie event. Um, and women are wearing fur and all this stuff. And, uh, and so it just was like, whoa, from one world to the other. Jesus. But I see it as a, a way to, um, like there, they do, they did so much that night for this project, for the people, um, for With my their family. Furs. Yeah. With their furs and yeah. their tuxedos. But, wow. But the, yeah, the, honestly though, they, they were people with hearts in the right place and I get it. It's just cultures are different. We live different. We, and, and so I don't want people running around here and, you know, leaves and stuff like that. I don't want them <laughs> sleeping on the ground. Right. Well, you um, don't want anybody know. doing that. Yeah, no, yeah. no, not at all. But, uh, but it's been cool, man. Like the, the water four thing, what, I, a little update for you, like fight for the forgotten has gone into a dormant um, stage in our nonprofit, and we have officially partnered with uh, Water Four. We joined forces with them um, because when it comes to like the reporting, the business side, I, anyways, even the logistics and the training, uh, their water engineers, their hydrologists, the different kinds of things that they can add to us are so great. Um, they've they've given us a truck, all the tools, all the training. They've really been a huge like component behind us, but. One of the things I love most about them is, uh, is yeah, we're partnering in a way that, that how would I explain it? We we see the eye to eye on something. Like the owner, or I mean the founder, he says Water Four isn't about charity; it's about opportunity. And like, dude, I love that because when you just do charity, like you just help for such a short amount of time. But the Water Four method is like, hey, we're gonna put the tools in their hands. The, tr the, the, the knowledge in their heads. Um, and then we're going to look to create an opportunity for them that goes beyond what we can do from the West or from our short-term mission humanitarian trip. Um, we want to give this thing a life of its own, that it becomes a breathing, living thing, or even a business. You know, like there's, they're in 31 different countries and they're, they're helping these entrepreneurs do social good like they, they get paid to drill water wells and, and to train nationals and the jobs don't have to go outside. They can stay inside the house. And so I've just, I've, I've loved that about them. And, and the cool thing that I love is that it's not about us being the heroes. It's about, it's about the, the locals being the heroes. Like I, that's the thing. I don't want to be the hero of this. I want to be, uh, a spark plug, if that makes sense. Uh, in the engine. I want to get it started, get it running. But the, the people are 
the strength, the engine, the thing that makes it run. The spark plug gets it started, but but the locals and, and investing in them, telling them you can do it, fly on your own wings. Like uh, you just need the training, you just need the knowledge, you just need the tools. Once you have that, you're golden. You nope. can do this once for they yourself. Have, once they have fresh water, though, there's still going to be the issue of food, though, right? I mean, it seems like yeah. with the logging, you're saying right. that it's more difficult to hunt. Yeah, so what, what, what we've been doing is uh, we're interning the three agriculturalists right now, and we're about to hire them. Um, it's awesome. I'm, I'm so pumped. Um, but the guy that did the 3,500 trees, uh, he's great at farming. And so in three of the villages, we wanted to kind of start on a smaller scale first. Um because it is land, water, and food, and, and we, there's kind of a process to it. You know, you can't start growing food or having water without the land. And then first you need, I mean, you can't live without water for more than three days, I think, right? Or at least some of it. And uh, then food you can live for like three weeks without. Um, and so, or something like that. And uh, so with the food, we start in three different areas, um, three different villages. One's Tundu, and they're the ones. Sangi's grandfather, Leo May, he's one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. Like maybe he's never gone to school, uh, maybe, uh, but but I promise, like the dude is just a problem solver, and he inspires his people to get like the whole village to get around the vision and let's do this, and so we basically said start with what you have. That's kind of the water four method too. Um, start with what you have, and we're gonna come and we're gonna we're gonna fuel it. We want to empower you to be able to do it for yourself, um, and and that's all people need. They need a little a little jump start. And so, uh, so anyways, in this village and just Leo Mays, I wish I would have brought in the list of what it is, but, uh, from the time I came back and got married and went back uh, about 10 weeks ago, um, uh, I got to celebrate the 20th water well, uh, that was dug and drilled. Um, and it was such an awesome celebration, but one of the most exciting things to me was that I walk into Tundu <laughs> and at first, I was like, like, no way. How is this happening? Like, all of a sudden, I was walking through a forest of, of, of bananas. Like, uh, and, and, and they had planted on their own. We, we had helped, too. Um, we, we help when we can, and, and we want to help so much more. But they had planted over 250 banana trees out there, over 250 surrounding their village. Um, they had done uh, corn, a whole, whole field, huge field of corn, uh, cassava, which is kind of like a, sp- a spinach type, um, tastes kind of like spinach. Uh, they make sambe out of it. Um, they had done potatoes, sweet potatoes, peanuts, uh, maracuja or uh, passion fruit, um, and yams. Uh, that's eight. I think the list might have had nine or ten. But, uh, but they had done that all from, hey, if we get you your own land, do you think we could help you with water and you could help us with the labor, some of it, like taking the tools inside the village. Like they, they love that. They come and help us. Then it's like, Hey, if we want to get a farming project started, can we empower you to do that? We gave them some tools. We gave them some seeds. We gave them some banana trees and they just ran with it, man. And so, um, I don't know. I just, I just love seeing that if you empower someone instead of treat them like a charity case, if you give them an opportunity instead of saying, you can't do this for yourself. Get out of the way. I'll do it for you. Well, it's definitely a much more intelligent approach, and it's definitely better for them in the right. future, for now. Uh, it gives them that feeling of empowerment, that right. feeling that they're, they're improving and that their life is getting better because yeah. of their efforts. Almost dignity. It gives them something yes. to be proud of yeah. instead of something to be sad about. 
Like, oh, I can't do this for myself. Oh, I can do it. Yeah. You know? That's got to be cool for you to see. Yeah, oh, dude, I love it. And in, in, in one of the other villages um, that we call it Mapinda, uh, and it's, uh, anyways, it was, I, I've, at first my heart sank because they really loved their, uh, in nine of the ten villages, they really loved their huts. Uh, it's very culturally important to them, the twigs and leaves. Um, but whenever I walk in on, onto their land, all of a sudden I saw huts that were just like the Makpala, just like the non-pygmies. It was the mud huts that were, I don't know, four to six inches thick walls. Uh, they had the leafed roofs, um, but, but they were much stronger houses. And all of a sudden I'd, I'd come back, I'd gone back. And then all of a sudden to that village, what was important to them, the other one, the farming. And yes, they, this village also Mapinda started farming for themselves as well, corn and beans. But um, they started doing the huts because they were like, hey, if we're really equal now, we're equal to our neighbors, then we can live in the same kind of houses that they have. We can stay out of the rain better. We can keep our kids warmer at night. Um, and so to them, what was of value to them was one of the reasons they get called animals um, and, and, and subhuman and other things is because of their twig and leaf huts. And uh, their neighbors will say they live just like animals or they live in a nest or, uh, or, or different things like that. Well, now this, this place is, uh, now they have houses just like the others. We're equals now. Like that's, that's right. kind of their, their motto. Like we're equals now. And, uh, so that blew me away at first. My heart sunk. Then all of a sudden they told me they're proud. They walked me into every single Why did you, why did your heart sink? Because I thought, I thought they maybe had, had gotten pushed off their land. Oh, um, and that the, the Makapala had taken the land back and, and we have strict agreements and paperwork and like stamped in the courts and law, uh, that, that, Hey, this is the agreement that is going to be a peaceful way of doing this. And we're going to help the community come up together. So it'd be, it'd be dumb of us to go in and say, we're just going to help the pygmies. Right. So we, 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 we helped the community all together. I thought these guys had gone back on their word, but then all of a sudden it was, Whoa, they're living just like everybody else now. Do these people have any idea of the impact of your work? Like, did, did, did they understand, like, that you could reach, I mean, you're probably going to, a million plus people are going to hear this podcast. Yeah. The the, awesome. the impact that you're going to have when they talk about it on Spike TV, probably just as much. I mean, yeah. I don't know what the numbers Spike's been getting for fights, but it's got to be probably close to a million or at least. Yeah, I think it's over. There's a lot of fucking people that yeah. are going to be. Did they understand that? Did they have this idea of who you are? Um, they know me as Efeosa Mabuti Mangbo. <laughs> That's my but name. Did they, and, but uh, to like, like to, to try to. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't mean to interrupt you, but no, you're fine. To you or to me, okay? Like you tell me that five thousand people, five thousand children die every day right. because of lack of water. I can't get that in my head. I mean, I know I, I'm trying. I, and uh, it's I know it's horrific, but I mean my head is like what like this so It's almost like there's no place for it. It's like it's moving around in my head It doesn't there's no yeah. like you tell me your grandfather died. I'm like fuck man dude lost his grandfather yeah. You know what I'm saying it yeah, like yeah, yeah. it fits yeah. it makes sense you tell me 5,000 kids die every day because of a lack of water And I'm just blank. It's yeah. like, I'm trying to find a place for it when you tell them that you are going to fight on Spike TV and they're going to show a video of why you're doing this and they're going to show a profile on you. And th do they understand what you do? Do they, do they understand that these people are going to see you? Have they ever seen you fight? Have they seen a video of you? 
They've seen a tops card. A tops card. That's <laughs> yeah, it. A tops card. Do they know what you do? Do they know uh, that you were on the Ultimate Fighter? Do they know really. about the UFC? My, do they understand? My drilling team does. Uh, the the well drilling team. Um, right. And uh, sometimes we'd put on little entertaining things uh, where the pygmies would come around, and I'm not going to wrestle one of those guys, but uh, but I'll wrestle some of our well drillers. There's one guy that's at least six five on our team, and so I'm I'm wrestling with them and throwing them around a little bit, and I think uh, Ben will tell him sometimes that you know, hey, in in the United States, he was a he was a wrestler, he was a fighter, and people know who he is. But for them, the for a frame of reference, kind of like you're saying, you don't have the frame of reference for five thousand kids dying every day. I don't think they really have a reference for um, for television. professional sports, television. Like Any I've never that. met a Mabuti pygmy that has a cell phone um, that has electricity. Uh, I've met someone with a flashlight, or a couple of guys with a flashlight. That's um, like the cool dude. Yeah, he's got a flashlight. Absolutely. So uh, and and we've we've left behind some of the cheaper like radios, and they can get like two stations or one. Um, and uh, but but for them like. I mean, soccer, I don't even think they really know that that's a professional sport. Or maybe they do, but they don't have a reference because they don't know any of the players. They don't watch any of the games. Like, they know kick a ball around. And a lot of times it's just in a big circle. Um, but there's – oh, I should not misspeak because there's a couple places that um, with the Makapala, they have, like, some, some teams and have some uh, some fields and stuff, but that's only in, like, two of the places. Other than that, it's just a circle and you kick the ball around. So, no, I wouldn't say that they – they have a reference for what what I'm trying to do for them, but like that's not what it's about um, for me. No, I know it's uh, not about that for you, but I mean yeah. for them, it's got to be so odd. This guy, the first white person they've ever seen, and there's a yeah. video of you uh, that was going around Reddit a long time ago mm -hmm. of you uh, meeting yeah. them and them touching you, and they can't believe yeah. you're white and they're freaking out. Mm -hmm. But this guy who shows up out of nowhere, like a mythical creature. I mean, if you if 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 no one else could ever reach them and if if you stop going there and if uh if all contact with the outside world ceased you would be like a part of their religion i mean do you understand that you'd be like some jesus christ type character that comes out of nowhere some uh, some magical man from another world who shows them how to get water who loves them and cares for them here's a video of you well, they're they're grabbing you and touching you, and that's uh, actually the Makpala. Uh, that's the non pygmy kiddos. So their their parents, uh, most of them, were kind of the slave masters, and even even from that village where the reason Andy Bo was denied hospital treatment. So, but but really, like, I believe this was a moment used in my life, especially how it blew up. I just put it up for a couple of my friends to look at and it had like literally 40 views before all of a sudden it went viral and it was up for like four months, three wow. months, four months. Um, but and then dude, look like, at their beautiful it's smiles. Be millions now, right? Yeah. On, on YouTube, it's 1.8, I think, but on Facebook, a bunch of people ripped it and posted it and it was over 12 million. Um, so 12 million on Facebook. You you literally uh, are like a religious character. Well, I mean, I don't know about that. But no, uh, I mean, I know you don't know about that because yeah. you're humble and you're not looking at it like that. But yeah. the just the sheer perspective, like for them to to be living in that world where their number one concern is feeding themselves parasites, yeah. trying to get some clean water. And some guy comes from a, a, a place on the other side of the planet and this guy does this thing 
called Mixed Martial Arts, and he fights, and they broadcast it on television, something they've never seen before in their life. Yeah. They've never seen a video. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what MMA is. They have no idea the impact. Right. And then you're going on podcasts and talking about it, and you have websites to, to help people contribute. I mean, this is a... It's to that. I mean, I, I can't imagine that they would understand what this is. It's so funny. They're rubbing your head. Yeah, they're going crazy rubbing your hair. Oh, they were doing my beard a minute ago. But uh, it's so funny too. Couldn't you when you backed up when you they were like back up? Yeah, like, yeah. he's standing up straight. Run away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like they didn't know what to do with yeah. you. Yeah. Well, I've gone into some villages before, and literally they the women grab their children and dive into the huts. The men run and hide behind trees. <laughs> Um, and, and grab their bows and arrows and spears and stuff. Oh my God. And, uh, and it's funny cause in those cases, it's only happened a few times, like three or four times. Um, actually pretty much every new village. So maybe 10 times, but, uh, but whenever I go in, uh, it's funny cause it's normally the women that are the, the brave ones that come up to me first and then, and then touch my arm or touch my, my, yeah, it just, I've heard once before it was cause, uh, yeah, I'm the first white guy they ever seen, or is he real? Because we didn't give this village a, a heads up that we were coming or that I was the coming. The abominable snowman <laughs> yeah, is on the way. <laughs> yeah. At one time they were like, is that a lion man? Um, another one was like, uh, is that is that a spirit? Is that like a ghost wow. kind of guy? Um, you're the, I'm, I'm telling you, but, uh, man, you're like an alien. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then look at me, dude. I, yeah. I'm, I'm this crazy wild looking guy here. Right. Uh, with all this hair. Yeah. And then there, I just let it go wild. And so. Um, that's so strange, yeah. man. So, and, and with the pygmies and, and the Makpala that's there, most of them, even our well drilling team, uh, everyone is fascinated with my body hair, the arm hair, <laughs> because because they don't have arm hair or right. leg hair, and then I'm just covered in it. <laughs> so they I think got, like, you're like some kind of a white gorilla or something. Yeah, I, I, my buddies would call me the great white Sasquatch, <laughs> or, yeah. uh, or the vanilla gorilla. What? Wow, so strange. But, uh, so I, I just yeah. can't imagine how odd it must be to them, and they don't even really know how odd it is. Yeah. Like for them to not have the preference of television, not understand. Like if you could take them, you, I mean, if Spike TV wants to really make an impact, what they need to do is go to the Congo, take some of those little fellas, <laughs> and fly them out to your fight. Yeah. That awesome. would be fucking nuts, I man. I don't know what they would think. Uh, what would they think? I mean, at a grocery store, I wonder what they would think us using a, I've always thought using a credit card, because for that transaction, transaction, it looks like they give it right back to you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you get all this food, you give the cashier uh, the the card, they smile at you, give it back, and then you take all the food out. It's like food's <laughs> it's like free. You think it's free, You're, right? Um, Try so just, to get them to understand what the internet is. Yeah, or the moving moving sidewalks at the airport. Um, How about fucking Times Square? How about flying <laughs> them into New York City or right. Vegas? Yeah, sometimes I think about it and I think it would be awesome. Other times I think about it and I think it would be torture. I don't know. I may, maybe that sounds crazy, but also like giving them uh, a place where all of a sudden they have everything at their fingertips and take wow. them into a grocery store. And then they, oh. they, they miss their family right away. Taking them out to go to Benjamin or Loringa's wedding, uh, they started missing the forest like Deeply missing their friends and family deeply missing. I've never seen it before getting so homesick for something in two or three days Well, I can only imagine and the so, bond because their their struggle is so difficult. Oh yeah, it's absolutely. so difficult then, to stay alive And then when they were with us they had they had the food everywhere like we we're cooking the meals for them and everything when they came to the town and I took uh, his name's Captula and uh, He's on the video that's on on Kickstarter uh, that launched today, but um 
he passed away recently and uh, messed me up. But um, he's one of my favorite dudes. And um, anyways, I took him to the hospital like seven times. And um, what is this, Jamie? What are you putting up? This is the Kickstarter. Yeah. And how do we, how does someone get to this? Uh, it's Kickstarter.com, and then it's Fighting for Freedom. It's a new. It's going to be a documentary. We want to tell the story. I don't know if if we got five minutes. Um, yeah, yeah, to sure. Play it. Play Maybe it. We could do it with uh, the volume. Yeah. In my American bubble. Can we can we restart? Yeah. Okay. There are two people groups in the rainforest: the Makpala, meaning non-pygmies, and pygmies. The pygmies are the Makpala slaves. God, look at that forest. Slavery exists now. That was a drone. Today, it's not just a thing of the past. I mean, that's what I thought, you know, living in my American bubble. You know, there's no slaves today. We got rid of that in the 1800s. Slavery in today's age? Why? Communities torn apart for generations. They would call us monkeys or jungle people. Makpala would tell us we were nothing. After that, they'd call us nothing. And we would think, did I create us or are we human? Their slave masters would come up to me and say, what are you here doing with my animals? Or what are you here doing with my property? I own these people. We would work hard from morning until night, and we would get paid in two bananas to share. Two bananas for a whole they family. They just need to be given a few fish, a few bananas, something small, so that they can come back and work the next day, so that they're hungry enough that they have to come back and work the next day. If we made even a small mistake, we would be beaten. God create us. We're human. We have to fight this. People are worth fighting for. My name is Justin Wren, 13 years old, I want to be a UFC fighter. I started fighting professionally at 19 years old, I was on a reality TV show called The Ultimate Fighter when I was 21. It was the main event at the Hard Rock in Las Vegas when I was 23, and that was what I always thought was going to be my significance. My purpose was to be a champion fighter, if I could be that. Since then, I've come here to Congo. Why should these sweet, loving, amazing people be literally thought of and believed to be animals whenever they're these sweet, loving, amazing people? And so if there's something we can do, if there's something I can do, I'm going to do it. I was fighting against people, but really I was just supposed to be fighting for people. And even whenever we feel like the last ounce of strength is leaving, we still gotta choose to fight. And we'll, we'll see something amazing happen. I've seen people set free, bro. I've seen people set free. My name is Derek Watson, and I'm a filmmaker. And this story has dramatically changed my life. What inspires me about Justin is here's a guy who's at the top of his game and he leaves everything behind to go and serve and love someone else. So we really want to tell the story uh, through film because it's a story that really can inspire an entire audience to fight for something other than themselves and to fight for freedom. So what I love about Derek and I choosing the crowdfunding route 
uh, and being on Kickstarter is that we get to involve passionate people to be part of the story, be part of the solution. And that's why we're inviting you along. We could have gone different routes for funding, but we wanted to involve people in this process. This is an awesome opportunity to really give my Pygmy family a voice. I and mean, that was my first promise that I gave them, that I could try, at least try to give them a voice. And now I'm asking you, help me, help me give them a voice. So this Kickstarter campaign really is trying That's to help us to get one. just the hard cost the whole for force. this film to finish it out. Things that you have to do to get a film out on the biggest stage possible, that's what we're asking you to do. So this money is not going uh, to me as the filmmaker. I am literally giving up all of my time and the, the time of my production team for free to do this because we really believe in the story and we hope you do too. And we're gonna have some amazing kickbacks. We're gonna be talking to you guys. We wanna make sure that you guys feel as involved as we do as the filmmakers and as Justin does as a subject, um, and going down this journey with us. So you may be asking, why don't we just give money to Fight for the Forgotten, which is Justin Wren's uh, organization that he works with? Um, the answer to that is, yeah, that would be awesome. In fact, if you feel like that's what you want to do, um, and you want to give directly to help uh, free pygmy slaves through water, I would say go for it. Absolutely. Go to fightfortheforgotten.com and give there. Think of this though as an opportunity to see just a dramatic impact in the lives of, of the pygmies um, and honestly in the, in the lives of our audience as well. So that's this project and we hope you get behind us. That's awesome. I just tweeted that out. Oh, wow. So if anybody um, you, wants bro. to check that out, go to uh, my Twitter page, and it'll be up there right now. Today is, uh, what is today's date? The 24th, Monday the 24th. So it'll be, uh, if you're hearing this in the future, just go back to Monday the 24th and look for my uh, Twitter page or go to Fighting for the Forgotten. Just do a Google start, that's a, a Google uh, search, rather, for Kickstarter, Fighting for the Forgotten. Yeah, or uh, the Kickstarter is actually, uh, what was it? It's fighting for Freedom. Fight, oh, did I say Fighting for the Forgotten? Fighting yeah. for Freedom. Fighting for Freedom, but but the book is Fight for the Forgotten. That comes out on uh, September 15th. Um, there's a book with uh, Loretta that helped me write that. Loretta Hunt. Yep, New York Times bestselling author with Randy. Um, wrote Big John's book, and she helped me write this book. And uh, it was cool. It, was a, it, it turned into something like a passion project for her, and that's going to be one of the the kickbacks on the um, the Kickstarter. If you go support the Kickstarter, you can get one of the books and I'll sign it and stuff. And uh, then if people just want to go on Amazon, they can get the book and it's it's like half price right now till it go, till it actually releases. It's like twelve bucks and when it releases, it'll be like twenty four. And and the cool thing about that is thirty three percent of my portion of anything from the book, thirty three percent goes to the to the pygmies, goes to water wells and stuff like that. When you decided to get back to MMA to try to bring awareness and try to bring more attention to these people, how long had it been since you had trained? Uh, the entire time. Uh, Five years? Yeah. Nothing? Yeah, nothing. Uh, I mean, I was hiking through the forest, and I was I was But no martial arts? Absolutely none. What did it feel like to get back to the gym the first day back? Oh, uh, dude, like I should have been training. <laughs> <laughs> No, my, my, my body had hurt for a while. And I only really started training um, two or three months before I went this last time, which was 10 weeks ago. And then I've been training this entire camp too. Um, well, uh, the last 10 weeks or so. But it, it, 
it kind of was crazy. They bumped me up on a card quicker. And so uh, from going to the Congo to celebrate the 20th water well, plus like visa issues, they wanted to try to take it because they're corrupt. Um, my five-year visa and um they were so, trying to take it like how, how so yeah they so when my wife and i left uh congo the last time uh or basically they marked it down they wrote it down uh that we left six months earlier than we had no nine months earlier than we had and i have to go back at least every 11 months um to check in to show them like hey i'm i'm actively coming into congo and doing stuff so all of a sudden my time was, they said, literally they, I got a call and it was from the university and from our team, uh, the drillers. And they said, uh, FA, we, we heard that, um, that you're going to lose your visa in three weeks. I was like, what, why? And they're like, go look at your, your passport. Did they write down the wrong, wrong date? And so they literally wrote down the wrong date of me, my exit visa, just so that they could try to get another $1,200 or $1,400 out of me for a new visa. And, um, and I would have lost it. And when I went in, they would have a way to say, Oh, you came in illegally and you lost your passport and, and your visa and we're going to arrest you and try to get even more money out of me. Um, and when I got my visa the first time, literally I didn't have a passport for over three months, um, in the Congo, I had to send my visa or my passport to the capital and people I didn't even know, never, I still have never met, were handling my, my passport Fuck. while I'm in the forest. And you could have been and, stuck uh, there. Yeah, I could have been stuck 100%. And, Fuck. Uh, I would have had to do that again whenever I got back. They I get scared of getting it. stuck in Canada. Oh, dude. If, getting stuck in Congo. <laughs> I got a friend that was arrested in Congo for nine days and was thrown in basically like a dark dungeon with oh my all these God. other people. For what? He had a GoPro. <laughs> and they, they arrested him for a GoPro? Yeah, they said he was a spy. Um, said he was a spy, threw him in, the embassy had to get involved. Um, he's, a, he's a great dude. He probably wouldn't want me to, uh, I wish I could say what, what he does. Um, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. A GoPro gets mm -hmm. you thrown in jail for nine days yeah. and nine I days think, if you have help to get out. Yeah. And, and the thing that's crazy about Congo prisons is, uh, you don't get fed. They, you have to be fed by people on the outside. So if you get arrested, it's up to your family and friends to feed you. Um, and so this dude is, he was all alone. And he got thrown in prison, and then uh, you don't have clean water at all. They do bring you water, but it's dirty. Um, and I think he was, I think technically he was in prison in Goma, which is a crazy city. Like, one of the most insane places on planet Earth. Um, How so? Well, a rebel group called the M23 took it over not too long ago, or like over, over a year. Maybe, maybe closer to two years now. But um, rebel group came in. The military and police that were supposed to protect Goma, Goma is a million person city, a million people at least. It's like the, the capital of the Eastern Congo. It's where Ben Affleck is, or yeah, is, um, or Ben Affleck, or however you say his name. Uh, he's there in Congo, has a real heart for Congo. That's where, uh, Batman Ben Affleck? Yeah. Yeah, he's got an organization there and, um, is trying to do some stuff. And Angelina Jolie goes there and, like, helps rape victims. Um, but when the rebel group came in, the military and police that are supposed to protect it just ditched their guns, ditched everything and ran away. And like, uh, I don't know, a small portion just turned over to the rebels and said they were already rebels. Anyways, the, the Congo military is basically comprised of former rebel groups that disbanded and came on with the government. <laughs> and so, uh, there's like 38 different war warring rebel groups in just the Eastern Congo, uh, I think, I think, uh, 
it was BBC and New York Times. I'm not sure which one said which, but uh, they call it the rape capital of the world and hell on earth for a woman because a stat had come out in like 2012 or 2011 that said one woman every one minute is raped in the Congo. It's a, it's a weapon of war. It's 1,200 women a day. And wow. so, um, yeah, it's nuts. It's crazy there. And, um, and so this guy's in jail there. Yeah, he's, he was in jail there for at least six days, and then I think they took him to the Capitol from there. The U.S. Embassy had to get him no food. released. No. So how's he getting? What is he doing for just starving? I think so. I mean, I would have to talk to the guy about it. He, he, he him, and I haven't really talked about how all of it went down. All I know is he works in surrounding countries, and the dude's awesome. Like he's got a business that works in uh, Whole Foods and other stuff that that goes to do social good. Um, it's a really great, I wish I could say it. I, I don't think you'd want me to tell the story. Um, but, uh, so I won't say his name, but, uh, he won't come back to Congo. I don't think, or at least I've heard that from, from people that surround him and his family and stuff. Saying, could only imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus and it Christ. was for a GoPro. All he had was a GoPro and they did that crazy thing to him. I have the right people in place that, um, that they don't mess with me as bad. Although they do mess with me a lot, just like that visa. They just try to get money out of you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What a fun place Africa is. Yeah. Sounds like a terrific spot. Well, uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, Congo's nuts. Man. uh, So from the time you you have five years off, you start training again. How long between that and your fight? How long have I trained? Yes. I think if I put it all together, maybe four or five months you solid no. no no it's been split up uh uh now i'm ready I, I can tell you that i'm ready for the fight um i think how long did it take before you like felt fit again i mean how long did you before you went back to sparring and yeah i was uh, the, for the last four or five months i've been i've been going in and sparring i helped jared rochelle get ready for um a couple of fights and i helped josh get ready for a couple of fights um and yeah, so I was in there sparring with the guys and stuff. But I would say at first, man, it was brutal. It was tough. Like, my body took a beating. And uh, I was thinking I needed, um, well, I was told I needed knee surgery. I needed my meniscus cleaned up and stuff like that. Not a big one, but to get it scoped. And so I was like, oh, I don't know what I should do. Should I fight or should I not? And um, and then I found some some great doctors that, that decided to help me. Uh, they're actually called IPI. They're in Denver. It's called uh, Integrative Performance Institute. It's a new place. One of the doctors is an Ironman competitor. She's awesome. Helps all the NFL, MLB, NBA guys. But it's with, uh, we were talking about it before, but Reginikine. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of that treatment. Yeah, so it's great, man. They started you, uh, you, you start training, and then, like, did you immediately book a fight? Or, like, how did you, uh, how did you decide I, when you were going to come back? I came and I, so I flew out here three times, I think, for two weeks, and uh, was staying with Loretta Hunt um, working on the book. And she said, what if, what if I could get you a meeting with Scott Coker? Um, would you want to just go talk to him about exploring fighting again? Because she asked me and said, kind of poked and prodded, are you going to fight again? Are you going to fight again? And, uh, and I'd already been thinking about it and talked to my wife. And 
which my wife's never known me as a fighter. She thought I did Taibo at first. She didn't know? <laughs> she didn't know what MMA was, no, uh, <laughs> when we first started dating. And uh, when she found out, she was, uh, oh, okay. Like, and then I told her mixed martial arts. And so she's like, Taibo or Kung Fu? Or do you do like cardio kickboxing with your friends? <laughs> but she's so sweet. She's so awesome. And this will be her first fight to ever, uh, well, for me, to ever be at. She's been at Josh's two UFC fights in Austin and Dallas. Wow. Um, so this will be your third live MMA fight. And uh, you keep saying Josh, Josh Copeland's Josh Copeland's here, here the Cully Bear. Everybody. Um, so when you are planning on doing this, you, you start thinking maybe I should do it. Loretta prods you. You meet yeah. with Scott Coker. Mm-hmm. What, what made you decide to, uh, to go with Bellator and not go back to the UFC? I talked, we, or my management and everything talked with the UFC. Um, I would say that, man, that's a great opportunity. Obviously, um, I love the UFC. It's great, great, great. Um, even you helping support the water wells and Nate Marquardt. I, I don't know if I said that last time, did I? But uh, from one of his performance bonuses, he gave us two water wells worth of uh, donation. That's awesome. Yeah, dude, Nate the Great. He's, He's seriously a, dude. a great dude. Um, and he might not have, I, I don't know, he probably didn't want public props, but uh, I'm giving it to him. Uh, and then whenever I came out and met with Scott, though, I just felt like, you know the UFC. You could get, you could get lost in there. I don't mean that in a bad way, but um, there's 560 something dudes under contract. I think. Right. How many does Bellator have? Um, less, and then their their main card guys. Um, I think it's significantly less. And then also they. Whenever I talked with Scott, it was more of an idea of, we want to get behind this. It, he before I, we even talked fighting, he had sent out that video you just watched. He had sent that out um, to friends and family saying look what this guy from fighting has done and do they uh, even have a champ who's the heavyweight champ uh i'm gonna mess it up um it's a russian guy uh volkov was and now it's uh vitali or something like that Um, nobody knows though i mean it's not you know it's gonna be me soon that's (laughs) what i'm saying i'm like you could be the bellator heavyweight champion that's like a legit possibility right and i would i this is what I like to look at it as in uh, me from my wrestling background and in fighting sometimes you get you don't get this perspective but from a wrestling background you think of a podium and the champs at the top and then there's you know uh, normally there's the top eight or all Americans or whatever it's there's a podium of eight guys and I look at it as man I want to I want to get on that podium and eventually I want to get to the top I want to get to the top of that podium be the guy at the top the champ because if I'm there I have a bigger voice a bigger voice for my family um, and so, I mean, people will look, people will watch if I'm on the podium. And I guess they already are because of, you know, you and, and great people that are getting behind the story that see that it's important. But I know that the better I do in fighting, the more people will listen. And I know that's cheap and shallow um, at, at times. There's nothing cheap but, and sh- or shallow about okay. that at all. Dude, you're yeah. living like a movie. You're living, your life is like this crazy inspirational movie. This is amazing. Oh, bro. You know? Thank you. It's amazing. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's hard to imagine that someone could be that selfless that's doing as much as you're doing. It's, it's really, really inspiring. Oh, thank you. you but, know? man, whenever I, I, whenever I look at it because of the team that we've lined up, man, the 17 full-timers we got now, about to have 20, each and every one of those people on that team, like they are such fighters 
and they're so giving and they're so selfless and they'll go live in the forest year round and, and drill wells and, wow. and teach farming and teach all this other stuff. So I, we've got a team of such great people and we've had to let uh, guys go that just weren't weren't with it or, or we went through 20 people before we finally got to our team that we have now. Look, uh, legitimately, so, 20 people. I can only imagine. Who, yeah. uh, how many people, the amount of dedication that you have to have. Right. To live that life and yeah. to, to be that selfless, to go over there and dedicate all of your time. And you're, I mean, you don't get to go home. Yeah. That's your home now. Yep. And so it's, wow. we, we try to give them um, uh, anywhere from a month minimum to eight weeks maximum in the forest. And then they get to come home for uh, two weeks, rest up a little bit, and then go back out. Um, wow. Get so, yourself probed for parasites. <laughs> yeah. Get, get, get healed up. Get uh, other Man. stuff. Man. So. We're looking at ways how we can, there's no like healthcare system or insurance there. So we're trying to figure out how we can really set up our team that they're giving so much of their bodies, you know, like their health, their time. Uh, they, 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 we try to feed them really well out there, but still it's, it's not as good as being in a city or town. I can only imagine. And I can only imagine what kind of medical care they even have out there. I mean, yeah, how well, that, that's why to... I almost died. The four, yeah. four labs told me I didn't have malaria until I was almost dead. And then I got out into Uganda and they're like, they either said 60 to 70 or 65 to 70% of my bloodstream was parasites. And in Congo, they didn't, they couldn't see it at all. Oh my. And so sometimes like, well, like our head guy, um, we, you know, his wife was actually poisoned. Like people can be just wicked there and mean, um, somebody tried to poison his wife and kill her. Did, did poison did her. Didn't, poison didn't, her. didn't kill her, but, uh, almost did. She was, Why? In, a, she was in a coma cause they were jealous. Um, literally, literally it was just jealousy. Uh, they first tried to get, get, uh, the, I'm not going to say their names, but first try to get our, our guy and then went after his wife because they knew that if they could get her, then it would affect and hurt him. Oh, my God. And so we've we've sent her to Uganda for treatment and Kenya for treatment, and I think they've con- maybe gone through Tanzania, but um, but it's been months and months. Like, she's she's partially, has been partially paralyzed on one side of her body from it and uh, is learning, going through rehab, everything else. So mm. there's lots of stuff with health, and so we want to we try to see how we can... Um, love on our team that's given so much, you know, like, Hey, whenever you guys got a health thing, let us know. And, uh, we want to take care of it. So that's, what's awesome. The backing of water four, they're all in. And, uh, honestly, whenever I first got back, I was like, how am I going to do this thing? (laughs) How am I going to do it by myself? And, uh, because that's how it's kind of been. Um, I mean, I I got a lot of support after being on the show and lots of people were, were behind it. But when it comes to like the business side of it and filing with the U.S. government and all that other stuff, it was like, man, I got a CPA. I got other people, got my board, everything else. But I'm like, man, all, all I want to do is go there, be there with them, fan the flames, teach them stuff, uh, love on them. And then when I come back here, I need to, 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 to come on things like this, speak about it. I need to train. I need to fight. I need to win. But I don't necessarily need to do all the business side of things. So anyways, Water 4 has been awesome on getting behind us in that route. That's beautiful that you formed this incredible group of people and this, oh, yeah. this organization coming, becoming a part of you. Are you becoming a part of them? Right. Now, your Bellator fight, when is it? And uh, it's it's live on Spike, mm-hmm. right? When live is it on taking Spike, place? It, it starts at uh, 8 p.m. Uh, well, it starts 9 p.m. Central. What day? Uh, August 28th on Friday. 
Oh, so it's next week. It's this week. This week. This week, man. It's Friday night. Yeah, today's the twenty. Yeah, today's the twenty-fourth. Yeah, it's so 20. it's four days from now. Yeah. Where are you fighting? Uh, it's in Temecula. It's oh, okay. At Pechanga. Okay. So I'm fighting at Pechanga. It's eight. Oh, eight p.m. Central, nine p.m. Eastern. Wow. Yeah, me and who are you fighting? Gallard and Gertz. Um, I'm fighting uh, Josh Burns. Josh Burns has fight, fought for Bellator five times, I think, maybe maybe six, but I think this is a six fight in Bellator. Um, he's a he's a tough guy. He he hits hard. He's a finish or get finished guy. Um, his record's only I think like eight and eight. Um, so the kind of I mean he he goes out there and either crushes guys or he gets crushed. So that's my plan going there and. And crush him, even though I, I hear he's a stand-up guy. I've had so many people, even his friends, messaging me saying how great of a guy he is as a person, and that it's kind of hard for them to root against him or, or things. So it's cool. I'm going to fight a good dude, but he's got to go down because there's, uh, I got, I, I, there's 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 a lot more riding on it for me. There's so much more at stake now. Wow. Than ever before. Wow. Well, listen, man, I'll be watching. Thank you, um, man. Best of luck and uh, give out all the information so people can contribute. Uh, I, I gave out the Kickstarter mm -hmm. on Twitter. What else can they do? How do they? How can they contribute to Water for? What else yeah. can they can do? Yeah, if they if they want to follow me on social media, there's uh, on Twitter. I'm the Big Pygmy, and on Instagram, I'm the Big Pygmy. That's the Mabuti Mangbo. <laughs> uh, it, it just means the Big Pygmy. Um, so that's what a lot of the people call me. Um, that's where the nickname comes from. Um, by the way, it's random, but there's three kiddos now. And those three, one of them's in Tundu, that village. He's named as Mabutimangbo Justin. And so that's his full name is the Big Pygmy Justin. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm like, you know what? That should be my nickname, not the Viking. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, but um, how they can contribute is, man, fightfortheforgotten.org fightfortheforgotten.org uh, I think later today or tomorrow also .com uh, will be there. Uh, right now it's the old site on .com but the new improved site is fightfortheforgotten.org um, The book I mean uh, I think people can really I mean from our talks this is the deepest people can, can, can see into what I'm doing, why I'm doing it and my heart behind it so far but on September 15th it's 28 chapters of, of, of this stuff and I, I go into it real deep. Um, that's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, well, I'll tweet that out whenever it comes out. I'll do it. Thank and you. I'll, I'll tweet whatever you need, man. Yeah. You are, you know, you're an incredible person. Thank you, thank you, bro. You're you're incredible, and um, I'm so thankful for this platform. This this platform's easy. I'm just yeah. sitting in this room in the valley. Oh, bro, I, <laughs> it's I, not, I literally it's not can't hard. tell you how many people uh, from airplanes that I sit next to. Someone from San Diego that's watched it and, and someone at the hotel and just all over the place, man. I walk around and people are like, oh, it's Justin Rim from the Joe Rogan show. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? And they're like, well, oh, what you're doing? So, man, I'm, I'm honored that I could yeah. have you on yeah. and give you this platform. But because yeah. what you're doing is just uh, it's like you're you're amazing, man. There's not a whole lot of people like you, man. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, what you've done is just um, it's beyond words. So uh, anytime you need any help, I'm here. Oh, dude. Love you, man. Thank you. Love you, too, brother. <laughs> All right. Before I start crying, that's it, folks. That's the end of this. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with Abby Martin, uh, the Big Pygmy. Follow him, Twitter, Instagram, all that good shit, and uh, root for him, Spike TV, Friday night. All right. And Facebook, Fight for the Forgotten.